Hello, hello everybody. Wow, we are here. We're so excited and we've got so much to talk about. I mean, your mileage may vary. Everybody's going to have a different reaction to every episode, I think, but early indications are this might be the best episode of all time for a lot of people, including myself. I think Ashea is on that train as well. What about you, Sean? I'm not sure it's the best or my favorite, which might be two different things, but I don't think having that opinion is some weird, crazy thing. I totally right. understand. It makes yeah. sense. And I might even decide that over time. I'm still absorbing it. You know? yeah. I, like- I hadn't decided my favorite episode before going into this. So I don't know <laughs> it's-, it's hard to see if it unseated whatever you hadn't chosen. And... Of course, the uh, if we were to parse things by category, right? This isn't a. This would be pretty at the bottom if it was the best battle category. But if it's the pre-battle category, uh, that's just it's amazing in that regard. Yeah, I would say that there are certainly different things people are looking for out of Game of Thrones, and it delivers a lot of different things, and so it has a huge audience. It all makes sense to me. But that also means that some people are going to love some episodes that other people hate, and vice versa. I feel like. There are three things that will get like a big reaction from the the fandom. And to be fair, uh, you know, I feel like the show hits one of these almost every episode. They, they kind of understand what makes good TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when they don't, they're setting up one of these three things, right? Yeah. You want either big action, big surprise, or big emotion. Those are like the three things that are going to get everyone, sure. you know, exploding on Twitter or whatever. And a lot of times you get those together. A lot of times they're connected. But this is maybe biggest emotion, you know, for, you know, like whether or not it's the best or my favorite probably is the most emotional episode. Yeah. Especially given that no one died, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's people expecting to die. So it's maybe, similar, yeah. but they're, you know, because it seems so overwhelmingly likely. I've never seen anything like this reaction Twitter-wise, um, you know, different f- – corners of the fandom react differently but twitter is just unbelievably grateful and happy but also sad about the pending deaths and anxious for the rest of the show um not everyone loved it of course but nonetheless it's the reaction is really quite something uh it's notable even if you're not among the people that are reacting that way uh one one uh twitter user dmagic underscore dfn said the onion ninjas were in many a house and I love the idea of Onion Ninja. If you an Onion Knight, why not an Onion Ninja? <laughs> so, of course, that's a reference to crying. And personally, I think I started crying around the time Theon and Sansa had their moment. And then it didn't really stop after then. Uh, for usu- As usual, for me, it's the music that really gets me um, when it's powering the, emo- the emotion of another of whatever's happening in the scene. And, of course, the music is always on is top-notch in Game of Thrones. And the acting just sends it over the top with it being so, so good. I know I get emotional whenever uh, – I don't quite think how to see this, but when a character achieves something between their dream or, or, or maybe something more objectively great, you know, I, I which I, I realize for me anyway, a lot of times happens on stage. People performing on stage a lot of times will get me to be emotional, whether it's like an actual musician or just a, an actor or a character. But I, I guess I do mean like – if on a work of media, a character had to give up and give a speech and kind of got the crowd rallied, that's not the same as like a musician going on to sing, you know, but it gets a similar kind of like reaction of, of achievement and uh, emotional from me. From Right on. Yeah, I think I think Brienne's knighting was really amazing. That's one of the moments that is particular, perhaps the capstone moment of the episode for a lot of people. But also Jenny's song, which was part of that scene, 
and a really epic and beautiful surprise. You can kind of see Brienne's knighting develop in the scene, but Jenny's song just out of nowhere, just no idea that was coming, no preamble other, other than Tyrion saying, anyone know a song? But how are you going to know it was, you know, that song, especially because that's not a song we expected to hear on the TV show. It's a, it's a song from the book that has uh, only a line or two written that the show added uh, the rest of these lyrics to. And of course, there's a lot of history to that song, and this being history of Westeros, we will be diving deep into that explanation, the history of that song, and, and the, the backstory around it. And uh, on Wednesday, we'll be giving even more detail on it, because it's uh, the book-to-show aspects of it are pretty strong, and we have a special guest to discuss that. Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair, <coughs> Storm of Spoilers and more, will be here, along with uh, Lady Gwen, and of course, Ashea and myself. So thanks to all of the patrons uh, for History of Westeros. Y'all have been amazing. There's been a big surge at the beginning of the season, as there often is. But y'all who have been around and y'all who are new, thank you very much. We're uh, feeling the love just like we are feeling the love from this episode. Super chat from Strange TV who says, keep up the great work. Azoria Hype, hey buddy, <laughs> donation train time. And Steven Stark, Aziz is a legend. Shea is the best. Sean has a beard. <laughs> love you, Sean. I legit shed a few tears a few times. And... Brian Hewitt says, Cogman stated this episode felt like a play. Chris Trombley says, ghost. Yeah, we didn't get much ghost, but we did get a sighting. And yeah, Brian Cogman, big shout out to him. He was the writer of this episode. And he is the among the writers of Game of Thrones. He's the one that knows the books and the history the best. So it makes sense that he would be the one to bust out these surprising uh, historical anecdotes and, and plot lines and all that. So... Sean, uh, any other thoughts on these comments before we dive into the first scene? I actually do have a thought. and Cool. <clears throat> I'm going to be careful not to be too negative because overall I want to be positive in life uh, <laughs> and positive about Game of Thrones um, and positive about this episode. But also, you know, I'm trying to like talk about all, come at it from all angles. Yeah. And so the, the comment about it feeling like a play, I agree with that. And there's, there's pros and cons here. And again, it's mostly pro, but... Um, I did feel like a lot of the stuff was a little staged. Okay. Does that makes sense. A little contrived, a little design for characters to give speeches or talk to us. You're not accounting for the realities of what's going on around them. For example, multiple times in the middle of a key conversation, someone's like, hey, uh, we need to talk about something else. You know, <laughs> like, it's a little un unrealistic that the timing of these interruptions would come them and also that they would make those interruptions. You know what I mean? <laughs> they would just like walk in on the queen, not give her two more minutes, knock on the door for something, <laughs> Kyburn up in there. <laughs> um, but that is connected to another thought that I've had about filmmaking in general. Um, I used to be a little bit negative toward what we're going to call classic Hollywood Casablanca, you know, old black and white movies from the 40s or whatever. And I, because I had this, this same kind of feeling that they're not, they're not really movies. They're just filming a play. And one thing I like so much about film is that you get to have all these things beyond just like the dialogue the characters say out loud. You get to have things like music and costume and performances and all that. Now, to be fair, this movie and plays have all that, which is part of why I started to realize plays are good if you can film a play and add music and all these other things why is that why am i so negative just because these movies like casablanca or 
staged, if you will. They're not as realistic as some other, you know, neo-French films or whatever. Uh, um, not as gritty or day-to-day taking time to watch people show, wash the dishes or whatever. St- stuff like that that maybe adds some realism. But it's still good. It's still meaningful. It's still symbolic. It's still great performances. It's still developing his characters. So, Part of me wants to nitpick about a little bit of lack of realism. I feel like the commanders don't have time to sit around and tell stories in a night before this battle. Someone should have been out there. Again, another little nitpick, but too many of these like upper-level characters were hammering iron and dishing out soup. They should be managing other people hammering iron and dishing out soup. But again, we want to see the heroes. They can't introduce a bunch of new characters. And by the way, when they do, we kind of know the red shirts. You know, We've got a couple new faces in here that I just assume are destined to die pretty quick they just want to give us some people to recognize when they get killed but anyway i'm rambling a little bit but i i wanted to say that i agree with it feeling like a play i can imagine some people complaining about it myself included but i still like it still think it's worth it still want to be totally positive okay well let's go to the first scene then the trial no immediate interaction between jamie and bran right away i was wrong about that i was really expecting that to be a thing but uh, not wrong about Brienne being a key part of the trial. She was probably the, maybe, a lot of people would consider, I certainly do, the MVP of the episode. And it starts off right here. She's basically the reason that everything turned. She's the one that flipped Sansa. And Sansa's opinion was really the domino that mattered. Because with both Sansa and Danny against Jamie, it's, it, that was, there's no way around that. John wasn't going to say enough to, he was distracted. And he's not a, you know, I don't think he... I don't think it mattered to him enough. And I don't think he was going to be able to push back against both of them with his mind where it was. Tyrion wasn't enough. Uh, but Brienne, because she flipped Sansa's mind, that was it. That that Everything changed because of that. So she was really the, the one that stood up for Jamie that mattered. And yeah, I think what John's reaction was also exactly as we predicted. He was like, yeah, we need every man we can get. Um, we didn't know he would be quite so distracted when that moment came, but it, it's still the bottom line was the same. Uh, it's kind of notable how he was avoiding looking at Danny, but we 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 know why. <laughs> no need to explain that. And so Danny was finding herself up against Sansa, John, Tyrion, and Brienne, and that was it. There was really no one else backing her up, so she was kind of uh, alone. And um, it's interesting there. Um, really key moment here. Uh, she's the one who told Jamie in the season seven finale to you know f loyalty. And hearing that from her, of all people, really moved him because he's like, you say that? You would say F, loyalty? Uh, but then she, he says that here. He says, yeah, loyalty doesn't matter over survival. This is far more important. And he's looking at her when that happens. And that's what gets her to stand up. So I thought it was really well done in that regard, the, the, the way it moved from opinion to opinion to the one that mattered the most. So what's your take on this scene in general here? I also like that idea that... Uh the, the loyalty matters uh, to an extent, right? But right now, the loyalty is to the living. Yeah. We, we got a similar scene when um, when the Magnificent Seven came together at the wall. <laughs> and each of them had like a beef with another one. Yeah. And, and someone, I think it was Beric, said, we're all on the same side. And like how, and some, some of the characters were like, how can that be? And John's like, we're all breathing. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, 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 a really that's how good, you know we're all on the same bottom side. Bottom line, yeah. yeah, that's a really good way to just dial it down very simply and succinctly say, we're living and they're not, yeah, and they're all trying to kill all of us. Um, I, I saw a minor criticism of the scene that I'm not sure I agree with. Uh, people mentioned that Jamie doesn't bring up the wildfire plot in his defense for killing Ares. And I don't think that's a good defense, honestly, because he didn't have to kill Ares. He killed the pyromancers first. The wildfire plot was done. He didn't have to kill Ares. He could have just captured him. And I mean, it's not like it would have been hard. Ares is weak and fragile. He could have just held on to him and, uh, you know, 
if he had to kill him, he could have just stabbed him right there. And, you know, uh, it just def- definitely wasn't necessary. So I don't know that that's a good argument. So maybe maybe Jamie knew that, that it wasn't wise to bring that up because he could see the counter argument to it. It might have been necessary or felt necessary, at least to Jamie, to kill him. Not necessarily to stop the wildfire plot, but just in general. Jamie knows how this is going to go, what this man's going to do, or who's going to follow him. He might have thought it was necessary. No, I don't think so wildfire. because the, their, the Targaryen dynasty had collapsed at that point. It was basically just a matter of he had already let Ares, he had already let Tywin in the city. Remember, Ares had already opened the yeah. gates. It was done. There was no there was no going back for Ares at this point. Re- regardless, though, if you remember, my thought was that Jamie's not going to apologize anyway. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't apologize right. for anything. You're right. For better or worse, it's uh, I, I think he's too too arrogant. Or even if he's correct, like. Let's say he's correct, and then everything he did was true and and fine. You yeah, know? maybe sometimes you should just say I'm sorry. You know, what I mean? <laughs> maybe when you're being face down with the yeah. queen, you know. But not Jamie. He's going to stick to his guns. He doesn't need to justify himself. He's like, look, I'm here to fight for you. You should just accept it. You know? Yeah, it's same as um, John refusing to lie to Cersei, even though it was like a really clear opportunity uh, to tell a white lie that uh, that made a lot of sense without being dishonorable. John saw it differently, though. So the trial kind of went predictably. We knew from prior prior trailers and everything that they weren't gonna they weren't gonna kill Jamie. Mean, that, w- that was not likely. It was never ever ever very likely in the first place. And I, I, th- I think I have more sympathy for Danny in in the preceding scenes or the following scenes here. Um, she seems to take her anger out on Tyrion a little bit here, uh, but she's not wrong that he has made many mistakes. He admits it himself. And uh, but it's it's. Fair to say that her anger over his failure is fueled by what has just happened. Uh, but the reason I'm de- I would defend her is that these are deep-seated childhood memories. You should give her a minute to get over that, right? It's a very big deal that her brother pounded into her that to hate this guy, right? And that's Viserys, a cruel person describing the ways they would torture him. Like, that's not what Danny is like now. Sure, she has done uh, cruel things to people, but she hasn't done it as... Um, you know, something that she enjoyed. Like Viserys, he would enjoy it. And then that's some of what's kind of been imparted to her. So, you know, it's not, an, it wouldn't be an excuse to carry that out if she were to kill Jamie. That would not excuse, you know, I wouldn't excuse it. Uh, but I think that it's interesting to consider in an episode that's so full of character growth that we have to consider that this is something that's been with her since she was a child and she's never, ever been able to address it until right now. Like, this is the first time Jamie's been, she's been able to say a word to this man who not only killed her father, but kill, almost tried to kill her. <laughs> I want to point out, by the way, a lot of these moments that might seem, I don't know what to say, murderous or sadistic or villainous or whatever negative attributes we might pick up on Danny for some things. How many of these exact situations was Arya in? And what did she do? Yeah, kill. Killing people mm-hmm. left and right. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's different for Arya because she's not queen, doesn't have all these responsibilities. But um, sometimes I do think that Danny gets it. I also like often feel like, oh, Danny, geez, you know, even mm-hmm. if I don't think she's being murderous, she's often unwise. But sometimes her being unwise results in people dying. But I still don't think it means she's a villain. I still see her growing. I still see if I can go back to something I said a, a while ago that I constantly. I, once I had this thought, I feel like it really drives things a lot, is that John started off looking for responsibility and ended up getting power. Mm-hmm. Danny started off looking for power and ended up getting responsibility. And especially on a rewatch, I saw several times where more in public, 
she would like put her foot down and make some harsh demand. But then in private, it would be like, man, do I even deserve to be queen? You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I want to recognize that she is trying to be good and she's basically a young woman who hasn't figured it all yet. I haven't figured it all yet. You know, <laughs> like even when I yeah. watch with all the context and all my knowledge of the world and everything, I still don't always know exactly what the right decision is. Mm-hmm. And even if I think I do, it's not like there's this clear, obvious good decision and a clear, obvious bad decision. And I'm picking a good one. Why would they pick? You know, yeah, this is really close to tough decisions. Also, and that's, a, that's actually a great point because not just on, on its own, but also it segues really well to the next scene, which is Jorah coming in to point out that you should keep Tyrion as your hand because he owns his mistakes and learns from them, which is what you just said. Danny does that too. And that is really cool. Uh, that is a great attribute for anyone to have, really. But it's, it's a super important for a leader. Uh, a leader who who doesn't learn from their mistakes is going to repeat them. Uh, or anyone who doesn't learn from their mistakes is going to repeat them. But a leader who repeats mistakes is it's going to harm their followers. Whereas if you just, you know, if you make your own personal mistakes and repeat them, that maybe only harms you or the people around you. So it just obviously means more when you're in charge of so many people. And Jorah seemingly points out that Danny should also smooth things out with Sansa, uh, just because of, presumably because it's politically wise to do so. Jorah recognizes uh, who's calling the shots there, <laughs> even though John is uh, has ultimate control, probably ultimate authority in a lot of ways over the Northerners. If he what he says goes in a lot of ways, he uh, he defers to Sansa so much that she's the de facto leader, and she can. Uh, she can move John on a lot of things, too, uh, because she's clearly on top of a lot of things that he's not on top of. She's thinking about a lot of things he's not thinking about. Of. So it does make sense for them to, you know, politically to to be on the same page at least. But I thought this was a really good scene. Um, when she walks in to talk to Danny, you out loud said promotion or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, I thought because of what had just happened, a hand of the queen wasn't going to happen because George just convinced Danny to keep Tyrion, but something else like uh, Master of Laws or Master of Coin or something, you know, just some other high council position, something like that. I was um, excited for this scene. You know, I thought it was it was really good. The the things she be, could potentially be going to her with, uh, and how it started to be positive, which I kind of felt like, oh, finally. You know, it, a lot of it. A lot of times, I have that same emotion when. Brienne and the Hound and Arya came on each other like, no, no, wait, stop, you don't, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I also appreciated at the end, it wasn't all just happy and perfect, that there is still a conflict. But I like that the conflict isn't just cattiness. Oh, yeah. Right? That would have been horrible. Yeah. But it's not that at all. They're not upset with each other. They are upset with each other's political positions. And I want to say something else that's kind of subtle. I, it's the type of thing I wonder if I'm reading into it, how much the writers or actors or directors meant it to happen. But... There's this concept from the military, well, maybe just in general, but that you have formal leaders and informal leaders. And formal leaders are someone who are given a position and they specifically have authority, you know, the, the captain of the company or the queen of the land or whatever. But there are other people who aren't necessarily designated with some leadership position, but they still end up being leaders just because they're charismatic, they're knowledgeable, experienced, people trust them, whatever it is. And I think Sansa is kind of both I, yeah, I feel she like, is. Right. Like a lot of times I feel like people are just doing what she says. She's actually in charge whether people know it or realize it or not. Yeah, like Tywin. I mean, not like Tywin, but, but how Tywin was like, Joffrey's like, I'm in charge. And Tywin's like, no, nah, yeah. bro, kid, you're, I'm in charge. <laughs> I, I agree. A very similar dynamic that people just kind of write. And it's hard to understand how or why when it happens. But it's, it's something that has been pointed out. The, 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 the riddle the Varys gave, like, 
who's who does the cell sword follow like yeah whoever it is it's the person that we think has power whoever that is and and I just want to point out that what's kind of given me this feel, um, among many other subtle, nuanced things I might not be able to identify, but a specific thing was that when Sansa decided, okay, Jamie's fine. When Bran told that seemed like that was it. Yeah. That yeah. was it. It wasn't like everyone waited for Danny to agree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everyone, that was, it was done. You know? Yeah, yeah. That was the and, big, the big do- like I said, the, the domino that mattered. <laughs> and when Theon showed up. It wasn't like Danny needed to decide what to do now. Sansa stepped up, hugged him, and I'll go, oh, that's it. That's what we're doing now. We're yeah. accepting Theon back. There's, you know, like yeah. there's no question whether or not, no, he has to serve me. He can't fight for Winterfell. Danny just doesn't have the option to say that. It's been decided. Yeah, everybody knows why why he's there and why would she yeah, and why would she disagree anyway? But you're if, right. If Sansa <laughs> if Sansa had, then that would have been it. We're not letting Theon back. Yeah. But when Sansa, you see what I'm saying? It was Sansa yeah. deciding there. Not, not that she would do that, but you're right. right just yeah. as a you know, as an extra thought exercise. Uh, they had a I, I, in general that besides their disagreement is a really good conversation. They talked about Brienne and how trustworthy she was, and Tyrion. Uh, Sansa also backed up Tyrion, also argued for him and put in a good word. And Sansa had this really great take on how easily manipulated men can be, especially ones in love. But Danny had a really good comeback to that. She said, "Well, does it really look like?" he's the one being manipulated when I'm the one who came up here and gave up my pursuit of the Iron Throne and the pursuit of power and all that, which is, Sansa had to take that seriously because Sansa is rightfully cynical and on guard against things like tyranny. And if Danny is one of those things, then giving up her pursuit of power, even temporarily, is a serious proof of concept. Like, that is strong evidence that she means what she says. But, so it comes back to what about the North? core of their disagreement you know sansa's got these suspicions D- danny in her mind knows that she's a good person whether it's true or not i think it's pretty true uh she's not a tyrant by any means uh, she's maybe done a few tyrannical things but overall no and sansa's just worried about that she's she's got the north uh on her and she takes responsibility for it and they made that commitment to independence she's not gonna she takes that seriously she also looks at thing from a looks at things from a politically political analysis standpoint yeah she's gone through a lot of this and she's seen how queens can manipulate kings she even if they're well intended she still realizes that danny could take over through john and danny hasn't proven herself yet so she's not sure if she's okay with that yet yeah so they're like you said they're interrupted by the return of theon and uh that was a nice like I said earlier at the beginning of the episode, that was the moment where it really started to to get dusty in the room for me. And it's just a nice reunion. There wasn't much to say. Like you said, he's going to fight for Winterfell, and that's it. So um, we'll move on here. But first, a couple of people are asking, what are you uh, drinking today? What's Sean sipping on today? This is a Dr. Pepper mixed with a naked drink. It's a pomegranate blueberry naked drink mixed with Dr. Pepper. Only those two things? <laughs> <laughs> I just have to laugh at the look on Aziz's face when he heard that combination. <laughs> and Chris Trombley says, got some Aries Tywin vibes with Tyrion and Danny. Yeah, Aries saying, you know, you yelling, you know, I'll find a hand who can. Although, of course, Aries would, would burn the hand who failed him, uh, not just fire him. But uh, <laughs> uh, T- Tyrion, or rather, Danny is a bit milder than her father. <laughs> I also want to point out that even if she never actually intended on firing Tyrion it, it's not that he should just be given it's not like oh, everything's fine don't worry about it you know what I mean like sometimes you need to be reprimanded you know yeah. like now that said I still feel like they're maybe being a little resorts 
results oriented. I think some of the things that have gone wrong for Tyrion weren't necessarily Tyrion's fault. Mm. That makes sense. Like I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, but say that we were going to have a competition so you could with dice and so you could roll the highest number. And Aziz got one die and I got three dice. <laughs> Aziz rolls a six. I roll one, one, two. Like I should have won. I just got unlucky. It's like if we play it again, I would. I'll play this game all day long. I should win when we play this game. You know, it comes out. And so if I do happen to lose, it's like you're fired, Sean. Does that make sense? It's yeah. It's but also it's not like you aren't disappointed. It still sucks that I lost. And yeah, Danny's still going to tell Tyrion she's pissed. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fair to say he definitely made some mistakes, but some of the things were. He just got out, yeah, couldn't have been predicted or he made the right move and, and got out play. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Some of them were mistakes. Some of them were maybe uh, understandable. Anyway, um, a big part of this episode that we, we both talked about liking quite a bit was that they had, there was some attention paid to logistics and there was small folk. We, we, we knew, we sort of knew this was coming, but we didn't know exactly what sh- shape it would take. And it was... It was sadder than we thought it would be. That Shireen-like girl, uh, Tila, is the character's name, and if I remember correctly, Tila is a is a character from He Man, which that might be the, the, some sort of sn- sneaky reference there. I don't know why they would. Was do it Tila Shira's alter eagle? Yeah, I think I, so. I could be wrong, but I think. Yeah, I think that's it. That's that's it's, it's so. Old. Adam turned into He Man. Yeah, and Tila turned into Shira. I think that's right. Yeah, this, this is all. Thing, I'm trying to remember the '80s, which is pretty <laughs> hard to do, but. So Davos talking to those scared men and then sh- the Shireen-like girl and, the, and and with Gilly there, it was just really just a nice scene. It was the kind of thing we wanted more of to just see other perspectives, see how other characters were dealing with. You know, we didn't get everything we wanted. We didn't get it. We still haven't gotten like the Dothraki at all really uh, doing anything or seeing how they adjust to stuff. Oh, well, probably too late for that. Not going to happen now. Um, but it's cool to see a lot of these little details that uh, the, the man in that scene that uh, Davos gives uh, a little morale booster too. We actually see him later. He pops up. Uh, Shay's got a shot of it here. Um, it's actually during John's speech later when he's talking about how our enemy doesn't rest. But it's easy to miss because he's not super distinct looking. But this Tila girl is. And that in itself is sad, isn't it? Yeah, it seemed to be an obvious callback to Shireen, which Gilly and Davos both would uh, you know, be drawn into. I saw. So I think this is kind of tinfoily, but I saw someone, you know, speculate that that's uh, Melisandre with some kind of glamour. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> coming back, trying to make amends in some way. <laughs> oh man, uh, <laughs> she dressing up as Sharina. That's just wrong. <laughs> How dare she? Now, yeah, that is funny. But if, if you're going to go with tinfoil of someone is somebody, like anyone <laughs> could be Jock and Hagar or Melisandre if we go that route. <laughs> um and. There's this little detail, like we see lots of weapons being made, people putting this heads on spears and making barricades, and there's even dragon glass spikes on the parapets, which I thought was a nice detail. But one thing is pretty ominous. Not only is this Shireen-like girl, the fact that her facial scar is going to make her more recognizable is pretty notable. I think if she turns into a white, that'll it'll be like, oh, that's why they made her face so recognizable, so we would know. Um, and at the same token, you have all these people hiding in the crypts, which we've, you know... Everyone outside of the show is like, don't hide in the crypts. They raised the <laughs> dead for the love of God. Why would you put the women and children in the place where there's dead bodies? That That is exactly what the main bad guy is good at doing. So 
it Yikes. seems it seems a little bit more likely to happen too when we when we it, they seem to be building up this showdown at the Weirwood Tree. You know, yeah. that's where Bran's going to bait him. That's where that King should go. Then I guess if things go like they want it to go, he'll be right there near the crypts. So yeah, if it's a proximity thing, which it might be, because he got when at Hardhome when he raised the dead, he got really up close to them, and and he stayed. It makes sense that he wasn't raising the dead during the battle because that exposes him, and he's his his primary you know, directive is to stay alive because, or <laughs> to stay dead. Hey, how do you, what do you call that? So that because destroyed, not sure of the nomenclature there. Yeah. The Tyrion line, if you remember. <laughs> oh yeah. Not sure of the nomenclature. <laughs> we don't either. So yeah. So we got Tyrion, Gilly. Well, we don't know if Tyrion's really going to go down there or not. It, he, Danny ordered him to, so presumably he will. Gilly, Varys, little Sam, Tila, just a lot of people that are at risk. And I think that's a great point. Actually, what you said about if the Night King gets into the, the, the the godswood which seems likely that'll be his opportunity maybe to raise the dead in the crypts because he'll have proximity i like that a lot that's a good call you know after we did that stream with lml the other day which by the way everyone should watch that stream yeah it's not uh, up for everybody yet but for people who have gotten the chance to watch yeah the rest of you'll, you'll get to see it on saturday saturday morning yeah uh anyway i every time i see a werewolf tree now i just see it on fire that's <laughs> <all>. <laughs> right on that's uh it's a really it's a really uh, imposing image, right? The idea of a werewolf on fire is like, whoa. Because I mean, you think it's got such historical significance in, in, in world because that's what the the Andals and before them, the first men were doing to the to the werewoods when they arrived in this land and were freaked out by these faces on the trees and the, the trees themselves were creepy. So, yeah. So moving on from battle tactics to, or battle prep to battle strategy, which was a, re a really fun scene. We got this awesome image of the board, kind of their strategy board here, and you see uh, a kind of a rough idea of how they're going to line up. You got Brienne on the left, Grey Worm and Dothraki in the middle. Uh, well, not the Dothraki are in the middle; they're arrayed in the front of the millet of the infantry, uh, but kind of in the middle. Uh, and then I guess it's Jan Royce on the on the right, perhaps. Um, not really sure where the commanders are. We just know that Brienne's on the left because she said so. Uh, we'll find that out later. Not super important right now. I think someone did take a picture. I think it was and, Kim, and Kim, Kim were, Renfro. And yeah. there were like uh, banners yeah. on, on the board. What was your question? I have the image right here and I can answer it. Oh, yeah. Can you tell which banners are to the left and right? Yeah, you uh, can see Aaron on one side and Stark on the other and the Targaryens on the middle. Right. Um, as can anyone watching the stream right now. You guys just can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's Air, there's Starks behind the Aarons as well. Um, the Aaron men, like the Aaron, like the knight <coughs> leading the forefront or whatever. Um, and yeah, so you can see that basically. Right on. Well, well said. Thanks for that, Ashea. There's, of course, as we hear from them, there's the general plan that John says, well, we can't, we can't just beat them all by destroying them all one at a time or, or what have you. We have to try to take, cut the head off. Uh, if we kill the Night King, then, uh, that's going to work, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and it makes sense. The using Bran as bait is the, uh, suggestion. And it's uh, it sounds risky, but it, Bran is adamant that it's the right thing to do, and no one can really argue against it. I feel personally, maybe they haven't built up the power of the undead army enough for me, but I feel like they should be able to take them. Uh, that that's my default thought. Is that between the dragons and their I don't know, I don't know how to say this, but their intelligence because the the whites just seem to just like storm forward. 
So it seems like it's easy to just lure them into a pit of fire or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like you could just hold off hordes and hordes of them with castle walls and pits and fire and dragons. Maybe eventually, you know, they'll... Because that's one, one, I would think, one strength of the army of the dead is that you kill them and they keep coming back. But if you burn them, this seems like the advantage. It seems almost like it's like they have Uzis against people Mm -hmm. with daggers and they're just gonna... You should be able to get like a, a, a 1 to 20 or 30 kill ratio, which might add up to the numbers that are yeah. there. Obviously, it's not... Like, I also thought that Cersei was totally outnumbered, right, going into mm-hmm. to last season, and mm-hmm. it it seemed like things kind of fell apart for Danny's side, and Cersei's still standing strong. So even if I feel like they're prepared, I feel like the show wants me to think like they're doomed, and the characters feel like they're doomed. But I don't know, man. I want to see those dragons. I think yeah. maybe the dragons get canceled out by the Night King's dragon. I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful here. <laughs> well, I, I sort of agree, but I have some good counter arguments because I was asked this question on Twitter by our friend Michael Sartain. Shout out to Michael. And uh, so I've already thought about it. And you make, a co- you make some good points, but there's a couple things that maybe you didn't think about. Um, one of them is just if we remember that last scene. In the episode, there are a ton of White Walkers, which we have not seen in a battle before. Before, it's been like a couple, a dozen, and half the time they're standing in the back. They're not fighting. But this time, they're in the front. That's and true. I wonder if the fire will be as effective because they can walk through fire. The fire works on the Whites. It does not work on the White Walkers. And they also are uh, just far better at hand-to-hand combat. We saw them take out some pretty serious fighters. John was able to, to fight them, but... You know, that one Fen guy. Yeah, barely. You're right, barely. And, and it was only because the walker was toying with him a little bit. The walker could have killed him pretty easily if he had wanted to. But he, you know, at that one point, he threw him in the corner. And then instead of stabbing him through the back, he could have easily killed him. But, you know, plot armor for John. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there's there's some definitely some options there. Also, the army is bigger than it was before. Danny at one point says 100,000 to Jamie when they're at the end of last season. But it's gotten bigger. Yeah, it would it have picked up bigger. It would have picked up the the uh, the umbers and the umbers and more than that. Remember what what he said? He said anyone between here and there. Anyone's not here yet. That's part. They're fighting for the night king now. And that could include things like graveyards, dead animals. You know, oh, all geez, sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just it's it's probably more than we think. Um, because yeah, even if they were able to, let's just say that you know that they could get like a hundred to one kill ratio. The problem is. It'll be it'll, days and days and days. They'll, they'll <laughs> still be coming. They'll start to yeah. run out of food. They'll be physically tired. Yeah. That's but yeah, I did not think about the fact that the White Walkers themselves, not just this mindless army, the White Walkers seem to be scores and scores, if not hundreds of them, which I didn't anticipate. I, I didn't thought either, that there were only like a dozen of them, maybe 20. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, whoa, that, that is, that is, that does change the game. And I do remember also looking very carefully in a rewatch that the White Walkers seem to extend extinguish fire around them mm-hmm. not just that they're immune to it yeah that the fire that the, the fire just goes out in their presence yeah know? it's like they are cold yeah that's a that's a very strong it's a it's a concept i think taken from the books because in the books it's it's almost that like they bring night with them it's more than just yeah. they bring the cold with them uh so it's uh it's cool that they they bring darkness with them yeah exactly yeah, it's really seen the heat and the light yeah that's a good point it's more than just the, the fire the uh, it's the light and the and the heat You're, that's a good point Hey, uh, you guys. Yeah. Guess what number we reached. Oh. 69. 420? Uh, do we have 1,000 live viewers? Yes, 1,086. Whoa, oh, easily beating it. Yeah. Okay, well, um, let's take a few seconds here to uh, do what we said we'd do, or do what you said you'd do. How do we do this, Ashea? Am I going to just dance right now? If you, we, What we would have done is play a song 
and we would I would pick up the webcam and you will dance like we did last time. <laughs> if we planned better, we could have done this better. <laughs> well, we can well, uh, we can should we arrange it for later in the episode? We can we can do that, Sean. You can if you while you're recording, please think of a song, okay. and I can cue it up on my phone. Okay, something to look forward to later in the episode. Then, as as a consolation, you, you could dance to Jenny's song. Oh my goodness, that would be oh. a, a tougher dance. It's a hard one I to dance know, to. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like just, a you just modern, back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> but for what it's worth, though, as a consolation, I did hit a thousand followers on Twitter and recorded a video for that. I tried to upload it on Twitter and it just went and I tried it on our Facebook times, group, though. But I put it in a Facebook group. So anyone who hasn't seen that yet, f- for this moment at least, <laughs> you can see me dance. <laughs> All right. You think about the song okay. and we'll, we'll, people will know to look forward to that going people forward. People can throw out suggestions. Yeah, they can too. even suggest songs. Suggest okay. songs. That's a good sure. idea. Um, I don't know about that because you can't really see the suggestions. I know what kind of thing you want, Sean, but. I, I feel like you, I, I want to know what song you'd pick, Sean. Okay, I, okay. I, I, I'll I think about it. It'll about. probably be something electro, hip hop, disco, sure. 80s, Prince, <laughs> okay. maybe. Hands of Gold. Do, People uh, are saying gi- The Bear and the Maiden Fair. <laughs> the Last of the Giants. <laughs> but okay, you think about that and yeah. you just continue on your way and Cu- let me know. A couple of super chats here um, from Chris Trombley. Thoughts on Bran working out of his body into a raven or another person before he's killed? Yeah, I could see that. Um, I, I haven't. They haven't really brought out the concept of second life like it, like they do in the books but you know it wouldn't be strange i think to see that on the show because we've seen bran go into animals before and the idea that he did that does that just before being killed is possible of course this presumes that bran is killed which is no sure thing but that would be an interesting uh tweak to the outcome of him being killed if he if he survives in a bird somehow or or some other animal from daydreamer so if the Night King is after Bran, why not get him to a dragon with John and fly him to Essos? Well, I think that could work, but the thing is the, Bran, the, the Night King isn't just after Bran. He also wants to, as we saw in this scene, which is what we're going to talk about next, in fact, so very good timing on this question, that the Night King wants to erase this world. So it's not just killing Bran. That's just a big, say, hot target on his list um, that gets him to his goal of, of destroying the world. If Bran were to leave and flee to Essos, the Night King would still overrun Westeros. And there would still be just an army of the dead, you know, shambling around (laughs) the empty continent. So it wouldn't be a a solution unless they just wanted to abandon the continent altogether, which, you know, is a valid option if it gets that bad. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, let's talk about Bran talking about the Night King. This was uh, a neat little moment. He, wa- he wants to erase this world, and I am its memory, is what he says. And Sam says, I wouldn't burn the books. I'd start with you. And that's a really poignant way of, of getting at the, that human memory and history is a big part of what makes us what we are. As you know, he talks, if we, if we didn't have that, we'd just be beasts. I definitely like that. I, this is like maybe a little bit of a nitpick, but I, or, or maybe a, a, an amendment. Is it, I, I've always had this thought that what we are is a combination of our memories and our, our dreams or our hopes. Okay, or, you know, yeah. We, you know, um, and so, you know, if we die, we lose our dreams and our hopes. If everyone dies, we lose our collective memories. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, yeah, and we can't, it's hard to have hopes and without, without memories. <laughs> and that is almost more devastating, the idea... I, I I almost would rather die than lose my memories. Does that make sense? Like I think if I lose my memories, I, I practically did die. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, you lose most of your sense of self, if not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea of everyone dying, <laughs> the idea of Rand dying, it, they are like tragic, scary things that are worth fighting against. You know. Yeah. More important than life. Hmm. 
And a really interesting line he says is that he claims the Night King has tried to kill prior Three-Eyed Ravens. And that's how he knows. He, he says, well, he's tried to kill me several times. But he's tried to kill prior Three-Eyed Ravens. He doesn't point out that he did kill <laughs> a Three-Eyed Raven. Um, but that's, you know, just more proof. It's a line of thought I've gone through with, with in, in discussions. Uh, you know, what does the Night King want? Maybe he wants John. Maybe he wants Bran. I'm like, I think he wants something bigger than that. But part of that might be John or Bran. Like, yeah. Uh, John wants to fight the Night King. Well, hey, guess what? Valerian Steel helps to fight the Night King. So he wants Valerian Steel. But really, he, he what he wants is to fight the Night King. It's, it's a means to an end. Yeah. And it gets into, you know, even talking about beasts, even, even you know, non-humans have instincts and a, a so-called evolutionary mandate where they generally just want to survive and breed. And even if you apply that logic to Night King and the, and the White Walkers, it's kind of odd because they're this fantastical creation, but they still have this drive to do, you know, what they came to do. <laughs> and they're still, they procreate, even though it's a very odd method of procreation. They look for babies and, and turn them into their, their kind. And then they uh, want to turn the land into what's hospitable to them. I think the North just needs to produce a lot of bubble gum. <laughs> they just can't chew gum and kick butt. And they're all out of bubble gum. So that's the... <laughs> if only they had invented gum at this point. They don't even have... They don't have the technology. Hey, real quick. Just sure. because I'm still getting people in the chat talking about this. Tila was from He-Man. And Adora is the name of She-Ra. Oh, I just okay. knew that anyone listening to the podcast, I just really... Okay. So we were close. I, to get that I, I don't want these the emails about this. <laughs> <laughs> so we were very close, but not quite. So Adara, I didn't remember that name, Adara, even. Adora. Adora. Okay. Adora. Adora. Hmm. Huh. Okay. You well, should be cool. watching She-Ra, Princess of Power <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Falling behind on my She-Ra. <laughs> Netflix should give us some money for that plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... It's it, the idea of Bran as bait is is you know something we've brought up already, and Theon and his men are going to guard him, and that's cool. Bran accepts that. Everyone seems to accept that. It's a nice, meaningful moment. Um, and Arya, uh, you know, always mind on the game, you know, kind of keeping her eye, focus on uh, the the goal here, which is to kill the Night King. Says Dragonfire will stop him, and. No, we don't know. I mean, not no, but we don't know. It's Bran says, I don't know. No one's ever tried, and that. Yeah, why I don't know why anyone would have ever tried. It makes sense that there would never have been an attempt to breathe fire on the Night King before. This brings up I have, I have a couple thoughts I okay. want to have here. This first one is just kind of a neat observation my sister actually made. Hi Tara, if you happen to be watching. <laughs> uh in season one, episode one, when Robert Baratheon goes to Winterfell, every Stark he physically touched died huh. and every stark he didn't physically physically touch is still alive how so, about that interesting note i don't think that necessarily meant anything was planned i don't think but um but the other thing it makes me it's the opposite of king midas or, or yeah. like everything he touches dirt to gold everything he touches dies he's the real night king yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah everyone thinks brand's a night king it's robert <laughs> uh so my other thought was and, and i'm not sure about this i wish i could have researched it better but has bran ever given us a vision of the future no and in fact, here's a question about the future he specifically didn't know. Like, it seems like he knows all about the past and knows about things going on right now somewhere else, but nothing about the future. Maybe. Uh, like. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I don't think we've, we, like, he knew Jamie was coming, but I don't know if he saw, because he didn't know when Jamie would arrive. If he yeah. knew when Jamie was coming, he wouldn't have been waiting for him. Yeah. But he could see that he was coming, maybe. 
Uh, so it seems like, yeah, if we're trying to unpack that, I think that seems right. But Whereas other characters exactly have, yeah. like Jojen, did know what was coming in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah. interesting to know yeah, the different types true. of uh, magic or visions green that dreams, people can have. Yeah. A good point. Yeah, in the books, it's it's more, it's also a little bit vague, but it's sort of hinted that he could see the future. He's definitely suggested he could see beyond the trees, which is kind of vague, but it means he doesn't just have to see everything through werewoods. Uh, but that's also book canon, and it doesn't seem to to be relevant here. Bran uh, did see the future when he saw the Sept blowing up the wildfire. Oh, yes. Okay. I guess I'm wrong. Good Her, point. Multiple people in the chat. That's a great call. I missed that. Yeah, you're totally right. I should have thought of that. But this is very possible tr- true still. like I don't mean to necessarily counter it, but I have heard people speculate that he was seeing wildfire from King Ares. Ares never actually set the wildfire off. He never set it on fire, right. Plus, it was the same film. It was the same, like, it was clearly the same, like, image. Corridor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was the same, like, image, same filming or whatever. mm. Uh, So that's a good call. Okay, so that's definitive proof that he did see the future. Also, we have that weird vision of a dragon shadow over King's Landing, which we'd never, we don't know whether that's the future or the past. I always assumed it was the future until one of the D&D interviews (laughs) said, he said, we don't know if that's from the future or the past. So, but uh, just the fact that he says, we don't know if it's from the future or the past, implies that it could, it be, could be from the future. So, okay. I'm, okay, we solved this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can, he can see the future. Maybe not like all the time, but clearly he can see it sometimes. Yeah. His response wasn't, no, Bran can't see in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, that seems to be, surely he doesn't have, you know, perfect sight. In the maybe future, it's more but. difficult for him or he does yeah. it less often or, yeah. Another great, uh, maybe under the radar moment in the scene, it was when the, the they break up the meeting. Tyrion talks to Bran. They kind of sit there and say, if only we had, you know, if only we're trapped in a castle with nothing to talk about and time, plenty of time. You know, we're not plenty of time, but some time. <laughs> I was pretty proud of my tweet on that. I was like, yeah. I didn't really want to hear Bran's version of Bran's story anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, why'd you cut away from that? Damn it! But uh, you know, I pointed out that maybe this is a maybe this is a hint that Tyrion will live because he gets to tell the story later. <laughs> but then that would mean that Bran doesn't. Uh, if if we need Tyrion to tell Bran's story, that means Bran. Yeah, one of them's gonna die. <laughs> um, backing up to your comment about how the whites or the walkers can kind of dampen fire, you wonder how that applies to dragon fire. Right. W- w- yeah. Related to that conversation about the Night King and, and Dragonfire. I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess it doesn't stop him. But it might it might hurt him. It might affect him. But it's not. I don't think Dragonfire is going to be the thing that kills him. But we're not going to do too many. We, we're trying to stay away from too many predictions here uh, because we have so much to cover and the predictions will come later. But uh, I do, you know, since we're thinking about it, I don't think Dragonfire is going to stop him. It might hurt him, but it won't be the thing that kills him. I, I tend to agree. It, it might be that kind of like the the scorpion took took down Danny's dragon, but didn't kill it. It, it might yeah. be it might be something he recognizes is kind of like that moment when he uh, saw saw John kill one of the White Walkers with his Valerian steel sword. Now, you know, the Knights King like, was like, "Hmm, oh. all right, hey everyone, you check, make sure, take note, okay, <laughs> <laughs> watch out for that guy." Uh, okay, some more super chats. Uh, Scott McCloy says, "Just because, long live Sir Brienne of Tarth." Oh yeah, can't wait to talk about Sir Brienne of Tarth. That is coming. And from Thomas Pappas, aka Hey Mahelminth, to being a few days away from Ice and Fire Con. Hell yeah, that is coming up soon. We all get to watch episode three together out there. That is going to be a blast. Before we get back into it, we made an error. These oh no, we didn't put our dragons we didn't up. Did we? Our dragons, yeah. yeah. Get, yeah, let's get, get these dragons. It's super important to have dragons on our microphones. <laughs> have you been thinking of a song, Sean? 
Uh, not clearly enough. <laughs> oh. Now we have dragons on our mics, and we are even more powerful. <laughs> so, yeah, and still no songs. Have people been suggesting songs? Oh, Besides yeah. Besides Game of Thrones songs? Are yeah. we still, like, sitting over a 1,000 this whole time? Yes. Impressive. We're now at 1158. Woo. Oh, it's gone up. It nice. is. Growing stronger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to House Beard. So what comes next is a series of character moments. Uh, it, not that there weren't some before, but there's a lot of character moments throughout the rest of the episode. And each of them have just – there's so much you can say about each one of them, even though a lot of them are pretty brief, because they're all the buildup of seven seasons worth of backstory, or at least up to seven seasons of backstory. Not not necessarily full seven for all of these interactions. But there's just so much – history behind a lot of these interactions that there's so much you can say and so much you can say uh, say maybe they could have said this or talked about that if they had a little more time but not only can we understand it for just plot reasons and time reasons but in world they don't exactly have a lot of time <laughs> so that's kind of a fun concept too the first one of these that we can talk about here is Arya, sandor and beric and a couple of, uh, I thought this was a pretty good conversation, you know, good example of what I was just saying, brief, but meaningful. And uh, Arya asks, why are you here? And he's, you know, she asks, you know, you seemed more selfish than this, basically. What are you, you know, why are you not selfish now? And he doesn't really answer, but he says, look, I wasn't totally selfish. I fought for you. And it was cool. It's kind of typical of their interactions. Terse, but to the point. And uh, they say a lot with, with those single statements. I think Sandor is another great example of a character who, on the surface, seems one way, but underneath is a very different way. Yeah. You know? And, in fact, when you think about it, he's done very little fighting for himself. For for, for yeah. better or worse, like, he starts off fighting for the, the Lannisters, basically, you know? it's And maybe there's some amount of selfishness there, but it, he doesn't seem to exactly like it, you know what I mean? He just, that is true. Eventually, he's like, fuck the king, you know what I mean? He's not, it's not like he has this undying loyalty to Lannisters or to royalty or to knighthood or anything, you know, which I guess sort of shows how he's selfish, but maybe it shows how he maybe is more enlightened than some of these other characters. Why is he fighting for the Lannisters in the first place? Maybe it's... I don't know, for security or because he likes to kill and he's good at it and this is the yeah. way to do it. I'm not sure, but when when he leaves that scenario, it's easy to call that selfish, but it's also easy to call that righteous. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. when he does leave, he he does take up fighting for Arya, basically. And when he leaves that, he takes up fighting for I don't know, fighting is the right word, chopping wood for <laughs> people of yeah. a, a calling, and it, it just goes on and on, even if he's. <sighs> gruff and mean and, and maybe self-centered and considerate, you, all kinds of negative things you could say about him. But it's not, I, I kind of feel like Arya shouldn't be so surprised that he's there. Yeah. Now, all that said- She I, didn't exactly argue with him. She was like- Yeah, she's like, yeah, all right, you got me, yeah. But uh, all that said, I wish he would be a little more forthright about the vision he saw in the fire. Oh, I wish yeah. he would stop shutting Beric up when he wants to tell us about visions <laughs> in the fire, because I want to know, I want to hear what Beric has to say, dog on it. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic, and it really exactly lines up with what you're saying, is that even though he says these things, but sometimes they're actually indications of fondness. Like the way he talks to Arya, you know, you're a cold little bitch. You know, that was, he was, that was, a, that was a compliment. 
<laughs> yeah. coming from him. Yeah. And it's you can tell he's almost comfortable with Beric. Like it's kind of like the way Stannis quote unquote warmed up to John. Like it's like you can tell he's 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 getting to like you because he you know threatened to kill you <laughs> <laughs> and he insulted you. you no, know, it's the same thing with like he insults Beric and threatens to throw him off the wall. But that's but then he's just sitting there drinking with him and and they you know fought together. They went beyond the wall together, and that that means a lot. You also. Brienne notices that Jamie's not insulting her and something's wrong. He's not insulting me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and some true. of that even goes to, I'm going to say, it's it's kind of a natural way, I think, for people who are immature and inexperienced in relationships to insult per- someone that they care about, right? I think yes. you see that a lot in like teenagers, you know, guys making fun of girls or whatever when actually they think the girl's pretty or something. I think that's a common thing. Yeah, that is a common. You're right. That is a common thing. Um, it kind of, uh, I never thought about it that way, but that, that almost makes, yeah. When you really don't cool. know how to breach, you don't know how to be okay with being nice or admitting to emotion. You it know. seems weak to do, you know, that, yeah. like, it's that kind of like, so oh, instead, weak if I were to blah, blah, right. blah, you know. So, so instead, you, you, you still want to have interaction, but you just make it negative yeah, it's because like, you're a fool. You like know? machismo or something. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Super chat from Bill White. Testing. Ashe is the best. Indeed. Um, we, we don't, we, uh, that is tested all the time around here and she continues <laughs> to pass. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about Gendry and Arya. Arya moves on from that conversation to, it's not immediately this one. These scenes aren't, we're not doing these scenes entirely in order, but that's not super, super important for, for these character moments for the most part. It's also super difficult because it went back and forth a lot yeah, between a lot exactly. of different characters. We, yeah. we, we don't want to jump back and forth that much, try to <laughs> talk about all these things at once. So Gendry, Arya, they, uh, the first part of their, they have two scenes together, basically. The first one has a really hilarious comic moment. Of course, she's throwing her spearheads and Gendry is impressed and realizes, whoa, you, you're not lying. You really are a fighter, huh? But there's this dude sitting in the corner. She has got a shot of it. And, uh, <laughs> there's this guy that is sitting there right next to where he's, she he's throws. He's standing there. Oh, standing there. Okay. I, I watched this. I didn't notice it first. And he does the first one. He just like looks and he does not move out of the way. <laughs> and then she does the second one and he like looks again and, and gets the hell out of there. <laughs> it's really quite funny. <laughs> and in the second scene, she's shooting her bow, which is a kind of a callback to season one, episode one. And uh, it shows a little bit, you know, she's maybe she's trying to work out a little anxiety, a little of the like pre-battle jitters, even though she seems so calm. She's sitting down there shooting a bow in, in near darkness. <laughs> it's a little uh, right after she said she's going to go. This isn't how she wants to spend her final moments, you know, and then she goes and does that. But then it turns into something entirely other. No pun intended. Gendry <laughs> arrives, gives her the weapon, which he's. Gives you know, her the weapon. Gives her the weapon. Uh, more pun intended. <laughs> but uh, yeah, her gives her the shaft um, with its two end. No, that part doesn't work. <laughs> but it's, it's so detachable. Funny. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny the way she she. It's the first time we see her surprised, like since she became a faceless person, <laughs> which is when she says, "I'm Robert Baratheon's bastard." She just kind of stops when she's spinning her spear around. And it's just. I don't know. I just thought that was hilarious because it's so hard to get a reaction out of her. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> and uh, she plays the lying game with him, or shall we say, foreplays the lying game with him. <laughs> and uh, appropriate because this was episode number 69. <laughs> so, yeah, a little meta there, right? But I don't know. I think this this was a good scene, maybe a good idea. I don't know if it was executed super well. I can understand some of the controversy behind it. I don't. I wasn't uncomfortable, and I love that Arya had agency here. I think that's really important. But 
uh, some comments from some of our regulars took me to another space uh, on this line of thinking, which is that, yeah, maybe this this Arya should have maybe been should have been more attention paid to Arya's uh, sense of touch and how she, everything. This was an, this is something McCall uh, said to me, and I and it resonated that she should have been. It shouldn't have been so easy for her to touch people, given touch to her is all about killing and murder, and that should have maybe been dealt with. And to me, that's an example of uh, something that comes up when they don't have enough women in the writers' room, and in this case, they have zero. Uh, there've only been one, I think, only one female writer in the entire run of Game of Thrones, and that that's little things like this get missed because of that. Uh, but uh, but still, it was a good scene, um, a good idea. Uh, it makes perfect sense in in terms of the storyline. Uh, it was set up. And uh, yeah, what do you think, Sean? I was fine with it, but I also have seen some dissent and and also kind of understand it. I think like many things, like we point out a lot of times, something happens. And when you have a minute to let it sink in, you're okay with it. But at the moment it happens, you might be taken aback, you know. So mm. but we talk about how that happens with characters in the show. I know that happens with myself. I can see it happens to a lot of people. And some people may come around and understand it better maybe even on both sides i some of us might come around and start to think maybe that wasn't totally i i don't know but um i think that uh i i can't see how it's someone not liking it you know someone might perceive that is them not liking aria having her own agency or trying to stifle sexualization but i can also see why someone maybe is tired of characters being sexualized. Arya too. Like I, I could see all kinds of arguments on every side. Sure. Fundamentally, I was okay with it, even though I, I was maybe a little surprised. And it is maybe a little awkward in the same way that it might be awkward for me to see any person that I've known for ten years have sex or yes. become naked. You know, exactly. Like, and it maybe it's a little extra weird if you still think of them as a child or if they or yeah. uh, on and on and on. But yeah, um, it's not you're not misogynistic for being uncomfortable with that scene. There are misogynistic arguments about that scene, and that's an important distinction. Being uncomfortable with seeing somebody you like have sex is normal. Uh, at least it's not not necessary for everybody. But like like you said, I don't want to see anyone in my family or any of my close friends have sex. You know? But it doesn't mean it's wrong for them to have right. sex. Right. I want them you're to have crazy, sex, but I don't Aziz. want to see it. You're, you're crazy. <laughs> maybe some of my friends I want to see. Okay, yeah. <laughs> There's a couple, maybe. Hmm, actually. Hmm. But no, but you, you see my point, right? <laughs> no, not you. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that some people are struggling to put their feelings into words about this scene. And it's, it's easy to think that someone is being... Is, re, is it objecting to Arya's agency or is p being patronizing? I think it's easy to, to think that someone is being that just because they're a little uncomfortable, but it's not automatically that. Um, so I think it's important for to let people give some people a little leeway to think to think this through and to get their thoughts in order because it's uh, it's hard to explain. I'll, I'll here's here's one way to think about it. If you were to list all the sex scenes of Game of Thrones, yeah, in order from worst to best, you the ones that bother you most. The one, where do you think this ranks? You know, what I mean? it's yeah. pretty low on how yeah, negatively me, presented yeah. it was. The Sansa one's so obviously others. number one, I think. Yeah, well, maybe not obviously, but that comes to mind right yeah. away. <laughs> There's so many others that I that I bother me. It's like, obviously, it's not like I like the Sansa one. Let me be clear. Yeah, but that one at least I feel like was in the context of what was going on with the characters, of the plot, or whatever. Where there were many others. That just totally gratuitous. They're yes. literally just a porn scene while mm -hmm. some character talked or maybe even didn't talk. There was a lot of that early in, this, a, in the show, yeah. Uh, a lot of scenes that I, I feel like you could 
cut out and it would make no the, the only difference it would make is that I could watch it with my mom now you know like, <laughs> <laughs> or scenes like Craster's Keep where the mutineers are you know they're yeah. just raping yeah they're just a, and, yeah. constant rape in the background yeah. of a whole multiple scenes yeah exactly yeah it's really yeah it's 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 very it's 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 strange because it's a little you get more detached from these characters because you don't know them but that doesn't make it like if it was real, it would be worse. You know, it'd be just as bad. It doesn't matter who their victim is. It's just equally bad. But as humans, it's, it is natural to not feel as much sympathy for a person you don't know than somebody you do know and have feelings for. That doesn't make you bad. But it is an interesting aspect of human condition, I think, to discuss. I can see one of the, like, sort of parallel I drew in my mind. I think that people... And, and now again, the nature of the characters might change the dynamics, but the idea of seeing Brienne have sex, by the way, imagine if Brienne and Jamie had a love scene. Yeah. Which isn't like totally crazy. I don't think they're like totally going off the rails of the nature of their character and relationship for that to happen. And I think people would have felt, not that no one would have felt any awkwardness, but I think it would have felt less awkwardness because no one in their mind thinks of Brienne as a child or as being innocent. Yeah. I think, now, I I think people felt- shouldn't think of Arya as being innocent, but I can see people thinking of her as a child. Maybe they should get past that at this point, but I can see... You see what I'm saying? How yeah. people might have a different perspective For- and it, beyond the... Accounting for like the sexualization of a character. Yes. There's so many variables. What's I just want to say, for example, like if Bran were to somehow have a sex scene, I I would be uncomfortable with that because I've seen Bran as a little boy. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, in that sense, I can separate myself and not actually have an issue with the scene. But it shows me that it isn't a gendered thing necessarily, at least in my case, because I I, I think of the young Stark children and I would be more uncomfortable seeing Bran or Arya have sex yeah. than I would seeing Brienne, for example. I agree. It's not, I don't think it's gendered. It can be. Like some people's complaints can be gendered and it's important to to keep these things straight and that Arya's agency is important, but not all the criticisms of this scene are, are gendered or, or whatever. So Another thing that's important to keep in mind is it, even aside from this scene or sexualization or Arya or whatever else, people are going to get different things out of this or any work of literature. Or yeah. People will get their own interpretations and their own perspectives you know, some yeah. things that to some people are their favorite element or their favorite character, it's barely on other people's radars. Yeah, you know? oh, I agree. That's a so, great point because, frankly, I think uh, a great way to draw attention to that is that we're all Americans here talking. Not everybody, obviously, not everybody listening, but the, the three of us. And we, I think a lot of Europeans are like, that scene was just like, what? What's the problem? It doesn't mean, you know, like, there was no objection at all. Uh, yeah, like, people, some people, I see some per- one person in the chat saying, teens had sex, deal with it. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think that is the right attitude. Yeah. But it's different than no one's objecting to them having sex. It's the seeing it is the thing that some people are objecting to. But anyway, and they're not objecting to it. Or Again, having not personal troubles with. Comfortable right, with it, yeah. yeah some, but that's good because it's raising those things that gives people the chance to think about it and process that and realize that, hey, this is, good. This is actually good, you know. Anyway, let's move on. We spent a lot of time on that one. <laughs> Bill White super chat. Sansa made it very clear that she summoned all Stark bannermen to Winterfell. I thought we might see House Reed show before the Great Battle. Do you think it's likely we'll see them show after or during? I hope so, but I'm not holding out too much hope. I thought the Reeds were uh, a Tully banner. No, no, they're they're part of the North. Oh. Part of the North, but I will point out, I am curious. How, like she she brought some people south of Winterfell there, but you would think people south of Winterfell might not necessarily want to come north to Winterfell. Yeah. So maybe they, if they were to retreat, they would go along the way. That's true. I, I don't know. That's a thought. Then obviously House Reed, Greywater Watch is far south. Yeah, they would. They would bring archers. Would be the main thing. They would. They would provide their expert bowmen in the in the uh, in the neck. 
Yeah, it does seem like there might be safer places that are, or approximately safe places that are much nearby. The yeah. North is so big landmass-wise, you know. I feel like, and also I think that uh, during is almost uh, almost impossible. I think that uh, if we see anybody arrive during the battle, it'll have to be somebody significant. I don't think like a 50 reeds roll in to t- turn the tide. I, don't, I just don't, I don't see that. They're not a big enough army to, to for something like that to matter. But uh, I do hope we see them. I'm just kind of down. I've about given up on it, but I have been wanting to see Helen Reed. I've been waiting yeah. for his character to appear ever since that scene when Mira was staring off, you know, and Brand's in with the tree and she's kind of looking off in the distance. I, I, that, that planted the seed in my mind that we're going to see Helen Reed. <laughs> waiting for it to happen. Keeps not happening. Yeah, it keeps not happening. I don't know. I'm, 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 I haven't lost hope, but it Sean, never had much to begin with. Sean isn't even a, really a book reader and he's like holding out hope. <laughs> I know. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Super chat from Marcus Tarley. Hey, buddy. Marcus is a bass player and singer for the Daenerys and the Targaryens, a fantastic band. Check out their new video, Little Finger Super Spy. Really, really entertaining. Really clever lyrics, too. If uh, you live in the Denver area, you can see them playing. They're, they're playing. True at a, that. They were also some of the suggested suggested songs. Oh, for oh. your dance team. That's a fantastic yeah. idea. We're, we're coming up close on the mid-roll here. Uh, we're past... Our normal halfway point, but we're kind of expecting that we'll go longer than two hours today. So, uh, yeah, we should, uh, we're should we going to have to take care of that pretty soon. But uh, we'll, we'll go, wait a little bit longer, but you've got to keep thinking, thinking about that. Masande Grey Worm is our next uh, pairing to talk about. We see more xenophobia slash racism. Now, I'm not sure. This is, I, I, get, I was thinking about this. I think a lot of people see it and would, would call it racism, but I'm not sure it's racism. I think it might be xenophobia and that might be nitpicking. I mean, it's not nitpicking because it's not like they call it that on the show, but I think that there is a distinction there. Xenophobia is a fear of anything foreign and racism is, is you know, you're against certain races. Uh, maybe I didn't explain that perfectly well, but you, to me, that one of the differences with xenophobia versus racism is racism implies you actually know the race that you're racist against, that you're prejudiced against. You actually know something about them. Whereas these Northerners don't know anything about Grey Worm and Masande. They don't know anything about, and frankly, they spit at the Lannisters. And we see them, you know, it's not just the the people of color. So it's not just, reserve, and they, they, they side-eyed Danny and all that. So it, it's, it seems like they're consistently keeping it with the outsiders, but they're particularly noticing Grey Worm and Masande because they, you know, they look different, uh, even more so than the Lannisters. And it's a really interesting kind of hard to it's, – it's a touchy subject, of course, and it's – I give them some credit for, for dealing with it. Uh, I'm not super qualified to, to say whether they did it well or not. But I feel like it was in my limited knowledge. I'm glad they did it uh, just to – for realism's perspective. But I don't know if it was done well. What, what did you think of that scene in general? I had similar thoughts. You know, I, I feel like it they, – they didn't get too deep into it. But you can see that they wanted to touch on it. Yeah. And as viewers, we we do touch on it. We do. And I also do think it is neat to try to define the difference between racism and xenophobia, which are fundamentally both still bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like one's, uh, you know, it's not like this is good and this one's bad. No, they're both bad. They're just different bad. And I think maybe xenophobia in some sort of like ancient evolutionary context might have some value to preserving yourself when there's limited resources or yeah. whatever you know i imagine a lot of that gets dipped into and in, uh what's that show with the zombies that, that other show with the walking zombies? dead walking dead yeah but yeah it's, uh, someone who's xenophobic would would even someone of the same race but from another place they would be against and they would be against space aliens too you know not yeah right yeah exactly um, someone who's racist would like you said they, they, they kind of they're already aware of this other group 
and could or should know better, but don't anyway, rather than just generically being against all of the groups. Yeah. Um, and that's what you touched on earlier in the last episode was that the re- the, the lack of the resource thing is, is pretty important here. They, they may, you know, f- food is in short supply, so it's not just foreigners, it's just more mouths to feed. Yeah, if you have to choose which mouths to feed, yeah. like if I had to choose, like if someone says, Sean, you're in charge, we only enough food for yeah. X people, like I pick all my friends first, I pick yeah. my family first, and then, okay, now let me, maybe the, the doctors or scientists or yeah. something, I don't know. But This was um, a little more explicit because this last scene was not about food. It was just Misande approaching two young people and they just were afraid of her. And Misande yeah. was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> and uh, and then, so maybe that was partly fueling why Can she I- was chime in here as yeah. well um i've seen some comments about something about the scene that i think is really a, a good point which okay. is it adds to how sad it is not only i mean we know gray worm's gonna die but they can't have kids yeah they can't have kids it's true and so her, them even though like the kids rejected her and she can't have any of her own with gray worm and it's really very sad that's all yeah i would, I would definitely add to her sadness if she was going to think about it that way and that might be why she wants to go to nath i mean there's plenty of reasons why she would want to go back home but that might be one of them is that there she could see uh, children of her own uh, culture, you know, and that, might, that might matter to her. So Plus it's freaking cold in the north, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. See, I thought I, I wondered if this would happen for Gilly because that's uh, a culture that the northerners are are predisposed towards. There, that is something that they are. I don't know if racist is the right word, but they're ancient enemies. Uh, and so I thought maybe that would come up, but it's not always easy to tell who is a wildling and who isn't. Let's talk about the next scene uh, or next one we picked out, which is the Night's Watch reunion. Bump something rare. Sam and Ed's banter actually makes John laugh. John laughed. <laughs> despite everything. Despite all this, what's weighing on him. And yeah, it was uh, it was really something. Um, and uh, it made him smile too when he saw Tormund and Ed and everybody when they came in. Um, we were wondering what that thing he was seeing was we talked about in our preview episode. And it was just, it, as we suspected, it was a bit of a trick. He wasn't, it wasn't something he was scared of or, or, or astonished by so much as it was like, oh. Oh, great. You know, because he immediately smiles. So not much to say about that. But some of the quotes are interesting. He said, uh, Sam mentions those stolen books again. You, we keep hoping that's going to matter. Do you have uh, any new thoughts on how those books might come up or or any uh, just in general on this scene? I was imagining a, a scenario. I remember I had even talked about how we might have like a, a trifold battle, where, you know, dra- dragons in the sky. Jon Snow fighting with his sword and then the, the armies in general, you know. Yeah. Another piece to that might be Sam fiercely flipping pages through a book trying to find the answer, you know. <laughs> Is there a magic... What's the magic words? <laughs> Abra to... Abra could... Dabra, Night King, go back row. Him and, him and Tyrion, you know, it's flipping pages. <laughs> Check this. Hand me that one. Go, go. You know, this <laughs> artificial franticness music. Don't, don't, you know. <laughs> the timer's ticking down. What's the answer? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, and then we have this um, last man left, burn the rest of us comment by by Dollar's Dead, which is pretty ominous <laughs> in an episode full of ominousness. Uh, but it was good to see them all together again. We got a little ghost sighting. That was cool. That was cool. A uh, little ghost sighting? Yeah, a little, exactly. Yeah, that <laughs> ghost, it was pointed out by some astute watchers that ghost in that scene is notably smaller than Ghost in Season 5. Like, a way smaller. So, eh, there's not enough food to go around. <laughs> <laughs> Super chat from... Not with the dragons yeah. eating up all the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Super chat from Chris Trombley. Masande did not mention the Grey Worm about the butterfly issue on Nath. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're just... The show is just not going to have the butterfly issue on Nath at all. Otherwise, yeah, come on, Masande, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's butterflies on Nath that... 
that are they kill you. <laughs> they are the, the natives are immune, but uh, it apparently is uh, called butterfly sickness. That for a long time nobody knew what what the deal was, but the maesters think it's the butterflies uh, that that they have some sort of plague that the natives are used to. Anyone who's there for more than a few months will start to die. So I think we can assume that's not show canon <laughs> or else my Sunday's much darker than we thought like, this is how I'm gonna get rid of this guy <laughs> or the Nathy just really actually know how to you know make someone immune to the that's butterflies that's true they just keep they that secret don't tell anyone <laughs> they really hated the Roynar as it turns out I don't know <laughs> that's a good call <laughs> okay so let's take a quick mid-roll break here uh, let's get some let's get this dance on somehow how are we gonna do this we're we gonna pick the camera up and point it over there like we did last time okay so Passing me by, by the far side, if you can find an instrumental version of that. Skip out. Should I be jumping up right now? Should I, I push a chair up. out of the way? I have to get up. There we get. go, people. It's happening. All right. <laughs> can, can anyone provide the rubber gloves? I will be, uh, I will be mentioning um, the comments here. Dance for my amusement. Just in time. Let's boogie, folks. LOL. Classic. Of course, I'm reading the chat if it wasn't obvious. Get it, Dancing Sean. Dance, Sean. Well, I picked the right time to join the stream. Yes. I bought rubber gloves today. Oh, I can't keep up with the chat anymore. <laughs> Valerian Polymer. Epic. Get some. Dance with me then. Oh, yeah. Dance with me then. That's my favorite comment so far. Totally battling Sean when I finally meet him from the real Blackfire. Hey, Eric. How you doing, buddy? Will Brendan Beefish be erect again? <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, far side. One day I want to be as good as dancing at Sean. Everyone, dance with the cats. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Man can dance. Go, go, go. Yeah. It's fun to see the arm movements. Nice move, Sean. Nice, Sean. Woot, woot. <laughs> Such talent. Dance, dance, Sean. Dance, dance, Sean Aleutian. Kids got some moves. Sean is growing on me. Look at that. He can dance. Don't kick the guitar. Have fun, be well, stay hydrated. Fire! Sean the Water Dancer. <laughs> Did I just get served? <laughs> Take your pants off. This is better than La La Land. Cover the floor with water. Getting jiggy with it. A Northern Lord dancing looks like this. House beard. Glad I popped in. Ayo! Nice carpet sweep. Looks like Mc MC Hammer on crack. <laughs> Who knew that everyone in this high school was a professional dancer? Grow strong. Dab. <laughs> All right. Who needs Game of Thrones when you have Sean dancing? Look, you get to see they have legs. <laughs> I really do have legs, don't I? I have to get this back. We'll get this. Ashe is fixing the, the camera, and we are back on. <laughs> Did the first Sword of Bravos teach you those dance moves? That was great. I saw him. Keep the bearded man. He can dance for the, <laughs> for the magical or for the children. Boy George on crack. <laughs> Shake that monkey. Grease. Aziz is grimacing so hard. No, I'm not. <laughs> He's grimacing at how long he knows it's going to take me to fix this. Yeah. Chris Tucker has nothing on you, Sean. <laughs> Can we do a dance once a week, please? <laughs> if we get a thousand viewers every week. <laughs> There's our... Can we do that? We have to... Thank you, everybody, for indulging us in that. That was fun. <laughs> but clearly, the vast majority of you are into that. The chat was overwhelmingly positive. Okay, so also shout out to a few patrons. Thank you to our queens of love and beauty. Let me pull that up real fast here. 
Aaron, Lady of the Long Desert, names Emma of Starfall, the Queen of Love and Beauty, in sight of pods and men. Uh, pods and men has extra meaning for this episode. And from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, a fire of the North who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. They could really use Dark Sister right about now, I would think. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to all the other new patrons. I'm behind on my nicknaming of y'all, but it is such, it's so hectic right now. Also want to announce that we recorded an episode, a bonus episode, an interview with Matt Cavanaugh and Max Brooks, as in the Max Brooks of World War Z fame and son of Mel Brooks. And we had a great interview with him on Sunday that I'm going to edit soon and post up. And well, so in my excuse for not catching up with all this patron stuff is just, well, I'm just pumping out more content. So I think that's the, the, the best reason there is to be late on this stuff. <laughs> no one minds not having their nickname too much if it means you get more episodes in place of it. I, I think, anyway. <laughs> I hope. So let's talk about more. We have more character moments. We have this uh, nice scene with Jorah and Liana. Uh, then Sam shows up. I think Liana is smarter than she knows. It's not just bravery saying she wants to go fight out in the in the front there. Staying out of the crypts is a good idea. <laughs> you don't want to be down there, in my opinion. By the way, I think that in that shot of uh, you know the the overhead the, the battle board, yeah, that her banner was in Winterfell. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like in the castle. There's okay. like the I don't know the the last stand. So she might actually have to face. Zombies from the crypts, possibility. Interesting, okay. Super, uh, so he says, it's a pretty good scene, uh, pretty moving. You get the kind of the full circle on Gior Mormont. His dying wish was for for Jorah to take the black. Was that in the show or just the books? I, I forget. Anyway, it doesn't matter whether it was his dying wish in the, in the show because it was clearly something he, he wanted his son to atone for the shame that he had put on their house. And for Jorah to come back wielding the sword for to guard the realms of men, as he says, is definitely, I think, something that G.R. would be proud of. And I think G.R. could be proud of it, too. Um, and he's he's clearly with the Dothraki. Uh, he's mounted, and we see in those final scenes he's with them. So it seems like he might be, uh, you know, like a captain of the Dothraki or just a in their group. It's not clear exactly. Uh, Jill Wright asks, how many fighters among the living now? It's not clear, but I'm guessing it's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of what Cersei has, but they're because they're expecting to lose so many and then be severely diminished against her. Uh, J the way Jamie and, and Tyrion kind of painted it, it's as if Cersei has plenty to mop them up once they're finished fighting the dead, assuming they survive. So I would assume they have a number that is already in peril of having lost to Cersei with their current numbers. Yeah, I think um, it's, if I had to guess, it's got to be dozens of thousands, but that might be 25,000 or 65,000, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't think it could possibly be 60,000. I agree. That would, that would already too be the, many to... That's the, that would already be the largest army in the history of Westeros. Yeah, other than the Night King army. Right, <laughs> you're right, you're right. Uh, living uh, army, largest Or, or the army. wildlings had 100,000 too. Well, that wasn't army, army got though. decimated, but I suppose that's Those were, That was like their entire a, population. A population, yeah, yeah so... Um, in fact, that was part of the argument. They were like, we can take them. Most of them are just, you know, peasants. You know, they're, yeah. they're not like only one in a hundred is a fighter. Uh, anyway, another super chat. Nancy Groth. Tyrion got the story from Bran for a reason. He and Sam as the Crips brain trust have some role to play from below. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I, I, I really wonder how that might play out. There, there could be some more conversations that pop up that make them realize something that they 
each have a piece of knowledge that if lined up might might mean something. Nothing comes to mind. Uh, we talked about Valyrian steel before. It's probably too late for that. But yeah, some sort of mystery to do with the Night King. Um, it's still possible that, that the books play a role in that um, or the story that Bran tells Tyrion, as Nancy says. Any thoughts on that, Sean? I feel like they definitely, over and over again, keep trying to tell us that Tyrion's mind is important. Exactly how or yeah. why it's so important, we'll see. I think this is really far-fetched, but a few times I've, I have supposed that the Three-Eyed Raven is a role that will continue, and since we don't have another candidate to take Bran's place, Bran won't die. That's like a, a line of thought that I have. Maybe that makes sense. Tyrion, if they keep talking about Tyrion's brain, and he's... Yeah, seem, you're but, right that that seems far-fetched. Yeah. I guess it's not totally crazy, but yeah, I, I guess not. Um, but it is interesting that uh, people are noticing this, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. I think you're right, though, that the fact that there isn't another Green Seer candidate means it's unlikely that Bran dies. But that could be it could be part I of the bittersweet a, ending. Yeah, they could, yeah. Humanity does keep its books, but they lost this this huge amount of memories. It, yeah. So um, let's move on. Let's finally talk about Sir Brienne. I think the, one of the things people are the most excited to talk about. Uh, Shay has got the shot of the actual knighting, which is a really nice scene. So let's backing up. Earlier in the episode, when Jamie asks to fight for her, and she's genuinely taken aback, but it's nothing compared to how taken aback she is in this later scene. It's it's really beautiful. A lot of this scene with them all drinking together and talking and and just feeling like you know it's all about to end. It I love the way this starts. Tyrion is trying to give you know pump everybody up a little he says i think we might live and davos actually laughs but he starts listing off all the battles that people have been a part of and all the things they've survived which is sort of channeling what davos said earlier about i survived the battle of the bastards you know and all that stuff uh just the way he was perking up that other guy but now he's laughing about the notion himself but he says sir brienne by accident and then he's like oh i'm sorry i mean lady brienne and that's what starts this is a really neat way to kind of just like it's just a, it's just a slip of the tongue, but it leads to this really powerful moment, and uh, I just I just loved it so much. I agree. I, I I think that even if that slip of the tongue hadn't happened, this moment was bound to happen. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just this is the topic of 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 them all, you know, facing this this great force and you know having the honors that they're due, getting those before they die. It's kind of a I wouldn't say it's a trope, but it's it's been seen before. You know that the people get promoted uh, posthumously or on the eve of battle or on the battlefield and then die soon after. It's uh, it's a, not an uncommon thing in stories. And I bet it's something that Jamie has already pondered in his mind. I bet it's something that Jamie didn't just now think of. I bet he's been waiting for the right moment. Yeah, and, and it, it makes sense from a historical standpoint that the people who, if humanity survives, the people who fought in this last battle will be immortalized in a lot of ways. And it will be really meaningful going forward in Seven Kingdoms that there was a female knight that was part of this battle that was a leader. And that's going to be super hard for any man to come along later and be like, no women knights. Be like, nah, this is established. This is precedent. Mm -hmm. And this person was a hero. And that's that. So I think just thinking about how that goes forward, how people are going to be seen, remembered, how they're going to be remembered for what they did, whether Brienne survives or not. I know we're all, a lot of us are pretty down on the likelihood of her surviving. Well, she, like Ned Stark, her life will continue to – her sacrifice, if that's what happens, will pay major dividends for other people down the line. And that is part of what makes the scene so beautiful, among many things that make it beautiful. I just want to add another 
dynamic to this is that not only will there be like this precedent established that it's okay for women to be knights so that so that women that maybe should have been or could have been a knight or some other role even that might not have been allowed it also will inspire more women to try in the first place it'll be like open up something to aspire to be that wouldn't have been considered before and i think that's at least as important yeah and of course it's not just brienne we should mention Arya and maybe a few others um they're probably going to be remembered as well and uh, that's pretty big deal. Beyond a goddamn Mormont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> what is she like? Twelve or something? That's awesome. Yeah, she's as tough as any of them. Um, maybe not as good of a fighter, but just as willing to fight as anybody. Which is just gotta love that. The way I think the scene goes. <laughs> I just thought the way Shay said that just now. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> for now on, every time she comes on screen, that's gonna be the little soundbite in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and. It's funny. Torment in this scene is is pretty funny, uh, off putting and funny and and hilarious all all at once. And I've got my Torment shirt on, of course. Mike Robel, uh, shout out to him, great job. Uh, as overbearing as he is, it's great that he stands up for Brienne. He's just like he doesn't understand this weird tradition. He's like, why can't she be a knight? That makes no sense. <laughs> you know, and we're all like, yeah, that makes no sense. <laughs> you love the. It's like he's kind of the. The unsullied here. He doesn't know the rules, so he's coming in blind. Like, why? What is that? That doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I love the perspective of someone who's outside the system weighing in on how dumb the system is. <laughs> Fuck tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's someone. He's like he's kind of like Sandor without the without the uh, the hate. Like he he wasn't traumatized by these notions. He doesn't have like a knighthood is bullshit. As, you know, attitude because he doesn't even hardly know what knighthood is, but he just knows that knights are fighters, and she is clearly a fighter. And so yeah. to him, it's very yeah. simple. Yeah. <laughs> then Jamie sets us up, and Brienne knocks us down. Her acting is just unbelievable. The transformation of her face from, I don't want this, to, this is what I've always wanted, to awkward smile, because she's not accustomed to smiling. It's so beautiful. Like, this is someone who doesn't smile because she's never, she's just, she's just hard ass that kind of has to be. And so the fact that she smiled awkwardly is just so perfect. It's exactly how I would imagine it because she's not used to smiling. So, of course, it's awkward. I just love it. It's just so perfect. Her acting was amazing. I'm just going to keep gushing. So jump in. <laughs> I, I agree. And uh, one of my favorite things about this show are the performances and something that I, I think about a lot. I don't know if it's ever come up on a show, but and I want to be careful because I'm not an acting expert and I don't want to take anything away from anybody. But I feel like it's easier to go, ah, to like yell and be loud and, you know, to, things that are seen as maybe emotional or passionate. But I much prefer the kind of like subtle eye movement. Danny and Santa scene. lips mark, was, you know, yeah. yeah. The one that Podrick had. Mm. That, and, uh, and also. He nodded at her, yeah. Yeah. And it also takes some good direction and some good editing to get that in, too. I think that those subtle little facial expressions are way more impactful or meaningful or difficult to 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 capture to me and yeah. some some more loud yeah. angry passionate kind of thing i like those really subtle nuanced things that really takes some patience to get value out of and there was a lot of that in this episode yeah there really was and that's really well said um i think that's uh, a good way uh, just a, yeah just a great take the, another thing that was happening in that scene that also happened in the the, the opening bit with uh, jamie is that Everyone was very deliberate. You felt like all the characters, maybe not all, because some characters like Tormon, some of them were clever or naive or brash characters, a little quick with their quips and their jokes and their weird freaking stories, you know. But in these more serious, somber moments, I felt like the characters were very deliberate in what they said 
and how they responded. There were there were these there was this sort of this pacing when we went back and forth with Jamie in the beginning between Sansa and Brienne, Jamie and Danny, yeah. and then at the end here when we went back and forth between Brienne and Jamie, these different characters, they would say something, and there would be this, this moment, this pause where they would stop, think about their response, and then say it, and the other person would stop and think their response and say it, and it was. I really appreciated that 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 presentation. I want to give yeah. a lot of credit to the tone setting and the the, the direction, the editing of these scenes. And in addition to the performances, yeah. getting these emotions out of us. And so. again, the music. Once again, the music was really, yeah. really good. And I, again, I recommend Kim Renfro of Insider, who uh, is really good at gathering the Easter eggs and details with callbacks and music, including the musical callbacks, the tracking what songs have been used when, and uh, the, mu- the music tells a story. I, I, I wish we talked about it more on the show, but we always find ourselves with too much to talk about. And uh, it's just one of the things that we, you know, had to reduce our uh, <laughs> our effort into because there's just got to gotta cut corners somewhere. We can't, uh, there's only so much we can prepare in 24 hours, less than 24 hours after the episode airs. But so, uh, but uh, that's why this community is great. There's people working on all these different angles and, and uh, looking at so many different details and, and bringing this to life for all of us to enjoy. Other really key moments from this scene, uh, the Sir Brienne scene, we can call it, but there's a lot going on there. Tyrion's kind of like the MC of the party. <laughs> he keeps it going. And he's, he's the one who starts it. He and Jamie just start hanging out. It's just the two of them. And there's that line of the, the perils of self-betterment, um, you know, talking about how they both grown uh, a good bit. And Tyrion has a couple of great observations. You know, he's the one who, like I said, keeps it moving. He's the one who brings up the starts off the the Serbian stuff, and he gives Podrick this huge <laughs> cup of wine, which was good for comic relief. And he points out that everyone here fought the Starks, which was was really good. Uh, did you have any thoughts on uh, on Tyrion in that scene? I'm happy that he's still around and not totally shamed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another interesting thing uh, is that two the two halves of ice, Ned's stor- sword, Stark's sword, were close together again. You got Jamie with one half and Brienne with the other. And they're, you know, it's like one ni- half was knighting the other almost. <laughs> Some people wonder if the sword's going to be combined again. I, I doubt it, but I think there's almost no way. But if they do, I think it'd be awesome if they called it Stork. <laughs> Stark's sword. <laughs> Stork. Instead of ice, it's... Nice. <laughs> Reform. <laughs> so, uh, and the Tormund's stuff. Uh, Tormund's, you know, his Giant's Bane story was funny. I'm glad they got that in there. It's a book thing. It was kind of a uh, the law of conservation of Tormund Giant's Bane stories, <laughs> where he combined uh, two of his stories into one there. But it was funny. Uh, and I hope his F tradition line, when he says fuck tradition, regarding Brienne and knighthood, I hope that applies to other things. You know, we've talked about how they need to get get away from monarchy and these other traditions that are bad um, that are that, that would be better moving forward from. And maybe that's uh, an oblique reference to that. Again, Tormund is the guy outside the system who is has a interesting, uh, untainted view of what it's like because he's not in it. And uh, it's nice that he's the guy making those observations. Um, and I like how the the scene progresses. How it just starts with Jamie and Tyrion. You get Davos comes in, you get Brienne and Pod, and uh, yeah, it just kind of grows from there. And it peaks with this beautiful song, Jenny's song, as I said at the beginning, came out of nowhere, 
beautifully done. The end credits version uh, is by Florence and the Machine. It's really easy to find. It's blowing up on YouTube like crazy. No one should be surprised there. If you want to make yourself cry, watch the video because the, oh, the God, imagery yeah. that goes along with it, they just they just pluck out all the classic imagery and heart-wrenching moments and just piece it in with this song. Okay, so let's do this. I'm going to tell an abbreviated version of the story of Jenny's song. The A fuller treatment is going to be in our book to show episode because there's just a lot more uh, relevance to some book plots that don't necessarily apply here. Uh, some of them are definitely referenced here, though, so I'm going to try to hit all the high points. And Sean, feel free to jump in with some questions because this is this is uh, our you know good uh, time for us to do the sullied unsullied thing where uh, you uh, some of this stuff is unfamiliar to you, and you can play the role of asking questions for other people who are unfamiliar with some of this stuff. So I, I do want to ask that. Jenny, this character, she wasn't some highborn princess or something. She was just from the block. Right. She was Jenny <laughs> from the block. That's right. <laughs> she was a common born girl who was the beloved of Duncan the Small. Duncan the Small was first born of Aegon the Fifth. And that's interesting because John is Aegon the Sixth in show canon. That is Daenerys's great granddad. And John's great great granddad, not Duncan the Small, that is Aegon the Fifth. Uh, Duncan gave up his heir, uh, his his claim to the throne. He was the heir for Jenny, and that is by itself is an interesting concept to consider. But we'll come back to that when we get to John and Danny's scene. So Sir Duncan the Tall is also Brienne's ancestor. Uh, it's one of the t- he's one of the two main characters of the Duncan Egg novellas, he, it's, which is set about 90 years before the start of the series. He very much embodies the ideals of knighthood without necessarily having been a knight. I, I won't spoil it, but there's let's just say that the, the knighthood, his knighthood is, say, an issue in the books. And it's his point of view, very notably, that all of the three stories, uh, which are called The Hedge Knight, The Sworn Sword and The Mystery Knight. And they're about 100 pages each, and they can be read independently of the rest of the books. But it just so happens that those three stories are combined into a collection called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, the title of this episode, and that really explains why we didn't learn the title of that episode for so long, because that would have been a huge spoiler to book readers, because like I just said, Sir Duncan's Knighthood is, uh, you know, an issue in, in those stories, and there's so many other parallels. Uh, they both have a scar on their cheek, not in the show, Brianna Dunk, but... A lot of book parallels, but uh, the main thing is their the knighthood thing and their size and their embodiment of true knighthood. You can get the Knight of Seven Kingdoms through our website. Um, there's a link there, uh, or via Audible, also through our website. It's read by Harry Lloyd, Viserys, the actor who plays Viserys, and he, he's really good. Um, also, for an even fuller description of Jenny Oldstones, plus Rhaegar and the Mad King and the Ghost of Highheart and Summerhall and Duncan the Tall, who again... Ancestor of Brienne, check out our summer, our Tragedy of Summerhall episode and follow up the Shadow of Summerhall, which details eggs attempt to hatch dragon eggs. And well, it's where Duncan the Tall dies, which is kind of ominous for Brienne. Not that there isn't plenty of reason to be worried <laughs> about her already. Uh, any thoughts on that? Any questions you have about Jenny or Duncan or any of that stuff? Maybe not so much a question, but a comment that. As much as I have paid attention to this show and dug into it and I started reading the books and I've watched every episode five or seven or however many times I've taken notes, I've have 
hours and hours of scores of hundreds maybe of hours of recorded discussion <laughs> yeah and still learning new stuff it's still so deep and so rich with so much more history and lore and symbolism and everything i you know I, what? I, so many times people are like, we're going to do when the show's over. Like, I don't know. I guess we'll just sit around and twiddle our thumbs. There'll be nothing else to talk about. Nothing else. No other yeah. information out there. There's so much more. You have I no idea. <laughs> I never know how to answer that question because there's so many ways to answer that yeah. question. Like, what do you mean? What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, you just said that. And I would say that. I am still learning things. And I've been in this fandom you read since the 2001. Books 10 years before the show came out. One of my favorite out. responses, they like, they ask that. And if I really am feeling kind of catty about it or irritated <laughs> about getting the question, I'll be like, if no more material ever came out from the show or the books, I we could still easily get 10 years of content out of the material <laughs> yeah. we have right now. <laughs> yeah. Right now. And new material is being released for the books and the show and their successor shows. And yep. yeah, we get this question a lot. Yeah. And it's, I can understand why people would ask, but it, it's, you can see that it's an easy to answer question. You can see why it's not, it, not, uh, ultimately, uh, a worry at all. This, this might be a borderline blasphemous thought, <laughs> but think about the Bible. Literally. Centuries and centuries have been around. Are people like done reading? And like, oh, there's nothing else to get from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, you know, and maybe less blasphemous for like Shakespeare or whatever. What, yeah. what are you gonna do when Shakespeare starts writing? <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll have no more literature to talk about. You know, like, <laughs> and that's a great point too, because in the Bible and Shakespeare, both there's stories and people discuss like the morality of those characters and whether those characters' decisions were were justified. And those story and the reason those this keeps coming up is Shakespeare and the Bible. Different cultures and different timelines have different cultural values, and so each one of them can judge those things on their own and imbue or take certain aspects of that as something that matters to them and discard others. It's yeah, that's that's just human the human condition. Yeah, when they make the last Star Wars movie, all the Star Wars fans just won't have anything. There'll be no more. All the podcasts will be done. They'll stop making toys. And- yeah, Lord of the Rings for years, they just did nothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lord of the Rings was a huge fandom before the movies came out. And between the movies and J.R.R. Tolkien's death, there was, you know, Christopher Tolkien releasing some of that unfinished material. But that's not exactly a ton, but there were still just, fandom has been healthy for a long time. Okay, so back to this, the montage during the song that, great job, Podrick, um, what a great singing voice he has there. That was, it just built until like he starts singing and then he just is, it gets more emotional. Like he puts it, kicks it into another gear during the song and it's like, damn, man. Is he single, by the way? Because <laughs> remember also, I guess in the, in, the, in the show, they made him kind of bumble on a horse, but in real life, he's an actual expert horseman. Yeah, right? that's how he was able to do that. To do yeah, that, yeah. To make like, it look He so really good. is a, a well-rounded guy. Like Seriously. Singer, actor, horseman. <laughs> Lover. <laughs> and he's now a good fighter. Fighter. Yeah, we see him like doing well in the practice field there. That was cool. Yeah, we hope he survives, but eh, eh, I don't know. <laughs> He may go down with the. Uh, he may go down with his uh, the the woman he squires for. We'll see. So we also see uh, Theon and Sansa during the montage, and it's just more great facial acting uh, than Arya and Gendry in bed. Arya is awake, kind of staring off into the distance. Gendry is asleep. Um, probably one of the only people in the castle sleeping. <laughs> you got Grey Worm and Masande. Uh, Grey Worm is kind of getting ready to. Uh, you know, lead his men. It's interesting the way they filmed that. He, they're kissing, and he abruptly pulls away and puts his helmet on and doesn't look back. It's very like he's now. It's time to to go to work. And I love the way that scene was filmed too, because as she's watching him go away, 
some soldiers come by and put a barrier in front of her. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, that was great. That yeah. was really well done. And then Jorah and the Dothraki ride up and it's just, whew, the feels, man, the feels. That reminds me, by the way, this is another thing that I, I irks me a little bit. And I, I think I even understand why it might be happening. I've gotten nothing, literally not a line spoken from the Dothraki. Yeah. Well, and besides I, the, the one line with the dragons not eating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was in Dothraki. <laughs> and I, I wonder, I started to wonder if that might be like a, a, a like a screen actors guild budgetary concern. They just like have to pay them like so much more money if they get speaking lines or something like that. And so it's easier to just not do it. It would frustrate me to think that that was the case. I, I, I don't know. I feel like. I feel like the, the importance of the Dothraki has been minimized too much. That, that She keeps having that advisor around, and he should have more to say. He should be more connected in battle plans and as an advisor to her. And It, it bothers me a little bit that we don't get more of it. Okay, yeah, fair point. Uh, a couple of comments. Um, one person uh, agrees, Jason M.I., agrees with Sean. The constant convenient interruptions to get out of dialogue before too much is revealed. It's an annoying writing device to me. To be fair, I agree. But also to be fair, George R. R. Martin does it too in the books. Oh. Okay, let's move on. Uh, super chat chat from uh, Acre Frey. Tyrion gets dementia is his, his suggested plot twist, and that's a bittersweet end. Mm. Interesting, yeah. That would be pretty bittersweet. Uh, it falls sort of in line with some of the theories from the books that he will maybe like lose his tongue or something like that, which would be something I seriously doubt they do in the show. But in the books, you could see it because of the POV structure. You could still get Tyrion narrative through his Ooh. head. But in the show, you just... I was going to say, how how could that happen? It seems like that'd be a hard thing to develop. But then I realized exactly how it could happen. You're on. Sam- Hodor. Oh, Hodor. Okay. A similar Hodor scenario. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Breaking his brain by he, warging or something like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, S.E. Gibby uh, says, thoughts on Hal and Reed validating John. I don't think it's necessary. John is seems to be convinced. Danny is not, to be fair. Danny had a good response of your brother and your best friend. And nobody else, that's convenient, <laughs> you know. Uh, so Helen Reed's going to come and she's going to go, your brother, your best friend, and your father's friend? Your father's yeah, best friend, I, yes. Are you not your father's yeah. friend? Or what? I guess she's yeah, your father, but either way, yeah. all people that are on your side of things. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know that that would add much to the argument. Um, this is another point idea. that I want to make, by the way. Okay. I, I'm going to say on Danny's side here, uh, and maybe a little complaint about writing for the show. You know, not trying to be too too negative, but just this is my assessment of what was really going on there. Okay. When Danny's like coming back at John there, I don't think that's so much Danny coming back at John there, although there's part of it, but I think it's just going to go away almost immediately. I think really what that scene is for is the average viewer out there that hasn't pieced everything together. There, there's so many characters with so many names. There's so many people that love this show. They love everything behind it, the drama, the action, the fantasy, the intrigue, the production, the performance. There's so many things to love, but there's so many characters and there are a lot of people, millions of people watching this show. They don't all watch every episode three times and take notes and read the books. Lots of people out there can barely remember a character's name, much less their last name, to make these connections. Yeah, and to back your point up too, there's a lot of people, frankly, that thought this episode was boring. Which yeah. to me is like, what? <laughs> but yeah. it's that sentiment does exist out there. Some people are looking, kind of like we said, some people are looking for action out yeah. of this. And so those people won't be as excited about this episode. And a lot of people don't, for example, I think they made a point when we have the the Liana Jora conversation. Yeah. Like, okay, cousin. You know, I think they got to hammer it home to make sure, I guarantee Remember, you, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people out there watching like, 
oh, we, she, oh. You know, it was like it's daunt moment realizing. Like, oh, yeah, they're both Mormons. Yeah, Yeah. right, yeah. And I guarantee you the same thing's going on. Part of the reason for that is they got to have Danny line it up for hundreds of thousands of viewers out there need to hear this explanation. That would mean that you have a claim to the throne. It wasn't quite so much her being upset and rejecting John as, I mean, that was there. It's how it's being presented ostensibly. But I think a part of the reason for writing it this way is so that now it's clear to everyone. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, and to be fair, Danny wouldn't necessarily be freaked out with the idea that she was sleeping with a relative because, hey, she's Targaryen. (laughs) Backing up a little bit, we've are obviously moved on to Danny and John here. The song ends, the Jenny song ends with Danny and John. And earlier I pointed out we'd come back to the the lyrics and the concept of the song and how it might apply to the scene, which is a woman whose husband died after giving up the Iron Throne for her. He gave up his claim to the Iron Throne f- for her and then died at Summerhall and with, with so much of his family where Rhaegar was born and where King Aerys, before he was King Aerys, witnessed wildfire kill most of his family, which probably is a part of why he's obsessed with wildfire later in life, by the way. That's something we deal with in our Summer Hall episodes. But that is very ominous for John fans who think that, you know, if he will give up the throne or his claim for Daenerys and then end up dying... Well, <laughs> there's your foreshadowing for exactly that. What is that? How does that hit you, Sean? Like I said a minute ago, there's so much, so much to this. I, there's so many parallels. I'm constantly thinking like, oh, this could be just like this other thing, you know, and there's still even more of it in the books. There's And there's also so many ways to predict tragic endings for so many characters. It, yeah. I don't know. This is This is just one more. It's almost overwhelming to think about all the different things, stuff like this could mean, the parallels it could have, the things it could be referring to. In fact, just before, literally just before we turned record on to this episode, I started thinking about how Eamon told John to let the boy die. And how at that moment, it's kind of like John needs to like become a man and some of his naive ideas he needs to let go and realize you got to make some tough decisions as a leader well, what's one of the first decisions he did kill ollie kill the boy right <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then what's one of the biggest arguably mistakes it's really tough for sansa to say it but really what she needed to tell john when they're about to face ramsey is like look you can't plan around rickon you can't you yeah know, john you know sansa's like look i know him you got to be ready for something you won't expect. It's not going to go the way you want. I know him. I know him. And John's like, I got this. You and know? He did exactly and what in, she said. And then yeah. sure enough, he <laughs> throws Rickon out there like like bait. And John just Take falls me. right into the trap. And if he had listened to Amon's advice, let the boy. And you can see it makes sense that John's not going to follow that advice. He's not going to understand. But by the way, it, may, it leads me into what's, what might be about to happen now. Brand's being thrown out there as bait. And John's probably going to want to save him when the Night King comes. Yeah. And, and he might just have to let him die. Which right? is what, actually, that's really interesting, touching on why Bran uh, had this timing for the reveal. If Bran thinks that John has to have this conflict in his mind to keep him from, like we talked about earlier, the death of duty and all that. Love is the death of duty. If he's too focused on Daenerys, he might not protect Bran. And vice versa. And that's just... A really tough thing to consider because how can you expect John to make that choice? But if he's if there's something pushing him a little more towards Bran, who some people might consider quote unquote more important to save Bran because he's the human memories, then it's a tough 
conclusion to come to that Bran is more important than Daenerys, but uh, if Bran thinks he's more important than Daenerys, it's it makes sense that he would manipulate things this way. So we don't even have to take a side here. Just these are characters doing their thing, and Bran is maybe just saying, hey, I'm more important, and I need to make sure John has that in his head. And this is how I'm going to manipulate the events to make it make this happen. So that was kind of a new thought for me. I didn't really think about it that way, but uh, it's a really good take on your on your point there about how their emotions will affect how they how the battle plays out and who they're going to save and who they're going to want to do. Like even smaller cases like Jamie and Brienne fighting together. Like I don't know how that's going to go, but that's probably going to go somewhere. It, you can easily imagine characters having to decide which person to save, or you know, like. One character is being overcome by zombies in a distance, and another group of zombies are about to get in the front gates. Yeah, and you got, I can't save both, you know. So. Yeah, that, that's that's a good call. Uh, Vampire Vampire ninety nine says, "I'm of the theory that the story of Jenny's song will happen, but in reverse. Danny will give up her claim to the throne and then die." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that could happen. I certainly. Th- thought it more likely that Danny would die than John, not because of a preference. I don't prefer either character to the other. I just think Danny is uh, Azor Ahai uh, more likely, and uh, I don't think John is Nissa Nissa. He's already died too. Um, but I think she's more likely to be the one that dies to save everyone. Um, not that she, not that someone kills her. She willingly sacrifices herself to stop Night King or to stop something, or maybe even to stop Cersei. I don't know. But... I like this theory too. You know, I'm not married to either of these ideas. I could see Danny or John or both surviving or both dying. I kind of doubt they both die, though. Actually, I'm I'm almost exactly with you. I I used to, in my mind, think that it was one or the other. I I think it's have have never thought it's likely for them both to die. But more recently, I'm starting to think that they're both going to live. Yeah, right. And I think it actually might make for better tragedy for them to survive their friends having died, for them to live but not be able to be together. Are we going to put someone. money on this? <laughs> yeah, we're I'm going to say they both die. Okay, uh, Shay's on that train. All right. all right, cool. We got all the all, several opinions represented here. Does it count if they die but get brought back? You know what I mean? In one way or the <laughs> yes. other? Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a really uh, good take there. I could see it going either way. There's no reason to just assume that because Jenny is the girl and Duncan is the boy that that's the, the same parallel. It could, you know, the, the claims and the, the who gives up what could be easily be reversed. There's absolutely no nothing preventing that. From Lady Air Airdross, when I asked our patrons for questions, she said, questions? My emotions are still all over the place, which honestly is how I felt when I sat down to try to write this document for us today. I was just like, God, where do I start? I, I, I seriously typed a bunch of half sentences because I wanted to move on to the next sentence. I figured I would remember where I was at, but I didn't want to lose my next thought. And it just kept happening over and over. And throughout this document, I found a few that I never did finish, <laughs> but I still knew <laughs> what I was talking about. But that's just how I was just, I just had so much to write. But Lady Air Airdress does ask, do you think Rhaegar wrote Jenny's song? I don't think we know who wrote it, but that's a really good idea because he was really obsessed with the story of his birth. He was born at Summerhall during the conflagration, and he used to go back there and and play music in the ruins. So, yeah, I think I got to say, yeah, I think that's pretty likely. Uh, That's a good catch. Now, uh, we've talked about the, uh, the, the overuse of the interruption to end a scene. Uh, however, I do like it on this moment because the three horn blast is just, 
It's so chilling. The triple horn blast for the others are here. The White Walkers have arrived. That that one I don't mind. But because they did it so many other times, it's like it does. Again. Like, it would have yeah. been better if it was not used so many times so that it had so much meaning in this moment. But still, it still had, it still gave me a little bit of a chill because three horn blast is just that concept is really sunk into my mind is, whoa, it's, it's so good. It reminds me of another thing that even though maybe I complain a little bit about the stage nature of it, and it also keep in mind I try to temper that complaint with appreciating. I appreciate yeah. stage performance as an art form, you know. Right. Um, it also does another thing that sometimes it's like a little too neat, but it makes for great imagery. Yeah. There's so mm-hmm. many great shots that even if to get there sometimes might be a little contrived or or unrealistic or whatever it's it's still so awesome to see the camera pan away from Tyrion on the battlements there <laughs> you know there, there's so many good moments it's a lot of times I wonder how realistic it is for everyone to be walking around wearing two swords and daggers and full plate armor just like walking around day to day just that really all day every day you just wear all this stuff like maybe I don't know but I feel like it's a little unrealistic but it's still it's part of the image of these characters and so some of these moments yeah. It, the, the the frankness that's created when that horn comes, it makes up the imagery that follows, makes up for what might be like slightly unrealistic timing. Shout out to Chatter AYK who says, Craster reunion at Winterfell. <laughs> 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 that's really funny. A lot of people in the chat are down with this idea that Melisandre has snuck into Winterfell already. It doesn't have to be that one kid, but there's just so many people it could be. There's so many refugees and small folk coming in Melisandre could be in there and I've, I've theory I'm, I brought up a theory um last week that uh th- there could be a faceless man sneaking in to come after Daenerys uh via the Iron Bank via Cersei and hey you know those two ideas work together it could be I doubt they'll have both of them sneak in using that method but one or the other yeah could be I will say, by the way, all these arrivals that kept happening, I kept expecting one of them to be Braun. I was about to bring that up. Good call. Yeah. We Uh, did not. I was. You got to wonder, what's the deal with Braun? He did not show up. Not not too late, obviously. Yeah. I I mean, was he going to show up during the battle, maybe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another thought that I had, by the way, last episode, the first episode, a character that was barely in the episode, no speaking lines, one or two images in their background was Brienne. Come this episode, she's featured character, yeah, like right? MVP. Yeah. You know who was mm-hmm. barely in this episode at all? No lines, just a couple quick scenes. Who's that? Varus. Yeah. I wonder he if Varus, especially yeah. when we're thinking about Melisandre showing mm. up, I wonder if he might be more featured. And when we think about the idea of people in the crypts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you're right. We haven't seen very much of them. The only thing he did in this episode was nod behind Daenerys when Daenerys is like, no, Tyrion, you need to be in the in the crypt. You need We need to protect you. And Varus is like... Yeah. When, yes, when, we do. <laughs> yeah. A- after that scene, uh, when they went outside, Tyrion looked to the others like, well, probably one of you guys will be hand before this is done with when she was kind of threatening his job. Varus was there as a person who might be that moment. But but again, no dialogue, just uh, mm. in the background. Yeah. Uh, Jason M, super chat. I feel like it is almost 100% necessary that the living lose this fight or we will look back at the threat of the others and be like, that was it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if, if the losses are really substantial, um, I might not see it that way, but it's got to be tough. Like, it, yeah, like if they if it's just too easy, then that will be pretty unsatisfying. Maybe maybe deeply unsatisfying. It just depends on maybe some other factors. There's there's ways they could make up for that maybe, but uh, yeah, I think that would be a pretty big mistake to have it be too easy. The consequences need to be severe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much buildup. 
Uh, Nathan Morton, would you ever consider doing a live stream rewatch with commentary? Yeah, I think we would. I think we do. Uh, we, we have considered that. And it might be something we, we revisit down the line. Uh, maybe when the um, pre, uh, prequel show is, is coming around, it might be kind of a fun thing to do to get back into the, the show mood. Um, we'll see. But that's a good suggestion, especially if other people are into that, um, then it becomes a lot more likely. So send us your feedback, not only about that, but about any other things you want to see from us in terms of content. We're always open-minded about suggestions. So the last bit of the of the episode is seeing the Army of the Dead arrayed. And that, like we said earlier, that is a lot of White Walkers. Damn, we like you said, we had no idea there were that many. And 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 jumping back to that funny Craster comment, it's 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 funny to think about. We see a baby White Walker, and we see like these ancient White Walkers. Is there any sort of growth period in between? <laughs> they have other teenage White Walkers. <laughs> they you know they you know they like go through this phase when they're playing with fire because they're being rebellious. And for more on that, you guys can watch the episode that'll be released on Saturday, where Elmamel <clears throat> talked a bit about that. Or is that in the one that's already out? No, that's yeah, that's that's the one coming out. Yeah, there's yeah. some of that in there for sure. Um, so he had, he had a good idea on that. I think very so true. Check that out. Yes. He, he he probably went into it more and said it better, but I think the basic idea was that they're just drawing the life essence from these babies. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so not raising them, but just maintaining themselves through right. their life essence. Yeah. Interesting. And speaking to the prequel show, we may, if not definitely will, get more answers about the nature and origin of the White Walkers, at least from what we've heard so far about that show. That that may be, you know, you never know. There's sometimes there's mis- misinformation given this project is still uh, newish. But we'll have to wait and see. That is still a ways away. So let's see. What are your final thoughts on this episode? We're getting close to wrapping up here. We're just a few minutes away. Um, yeah, I did have a, a couple notes that I missed earlier. Um, one is I wondered if there were, especially after that episode with LML, I wonder if there is any kind of intended symbolism or illusion when Arya threw those three uh, oh. Blades into the wall in that they, very pattern. You know, like yeah, a, mm. like a, maybe the three-eyed raven. Maybe the idea yeah. of being pinned to to wood, kind of like Ned Umber was. Yep, yep. Okay, um, okay. Nothing immediately talking about the mind, face but... of death. I want to see what this one looks like. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's a good one. Actually, uh, a theory I saw that maybe it was even your theory that that she, that she could maybe throw dragon uh, dragon glass or throw her spear at. Vasarian or something like that. It was mm-hmm. Jinx that brought that. Oh, Jinx's idea. Okay. okay, good call, and Jinx. I, I don't know if it was her idea or just her being part of the fandom. And I've <clears throat> seen buzz about that in the past in yeah. general. So it's an idea that is out there. And we also got her shooting her bow. So there's like a couple of ways that maybe that's foreshadowing something. But boy, she is very, very, very well armed. <laughs> like I said before, she's an Aryasinol. Another thing, her Aryachery. <laughs> Another thing that I've constantly been wondering about is what does the Night King want? And it was really awesome to see them address that. Even if it was maybe a little bit generic or predictable, just he wants darkness, he wants to kill everything. Is but I still I still like that they address that. But it something it doesn't address for better or worse that I still like to be curious about is why does he want it? You know, mm. is it kind of like just some some inbred part of the the nature of his existence like why does death want death? Maybe it's, you know, a silly question to ask, but I still do wonder if he, like, wants revenge for having been turned into the Night King or if there's something else, not just what he wants, but why he wants it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we know he wants to turn the world into darkness, according to Bran, but but that's not necessarily a why. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't exactly tell us why, yeah. 
possibly because that was how he was designed. You know, he's a, he was built as a weapon against humanity, and you know, he just got out of control. He, and, he's like a weapon that uh, a super weapon that they lost control of. And furthermore, why does he want it now? Is another question. Yeah, what to is ask. What's, why? What's, why yeah. not a hundred years ago or a hundred years later? Or what about now makes it possible for him to get it? Maybe not about. Maybe not about what he wants. Maybe just what made this now possible, whereas before it was not. And then finally, what does the Lord of Light want? Is something I'm still thinking about. And knowing what the Night King wants, how does that change what we think about yeah. what the Lord of Light wants? And we still have this, you know, Chekhov's Melisandre over our head from last season, saying that she's going to be back. Who knows when that'll be? Um, there's only four possible episodes for it to be. I kind of doubt it'll be the last one. You know what I mean? I feel like it will be between the next three episodes. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, also from Chris Trombley, this book, or this might be book canon, but I like the idea of a similar scene of Dunk being knighted by Egg before Summerhall. Yeah, maybe uh, the problem that with that would be that Dunk would already be in the Kingsguard by then, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and you have to be a knight. Um, so my guess is that the issue of Dunk's knighthood might be resolved before he joins the Kingsguard because I think he would maybe feel ashamed of dishonoring the Kingsguard with that, uh, with that so, quote-unquote lie. But I think that a similar scene could still happen. It just might not be at Summerhall. It might be at some other meaningful moment. Ah, I see a good question here that we did miss. That's a good one for us to talk about. Um, from Eves, Eves Kalert. Sorry if I said your name wrong. She says, you didn't really go into Bran's ominous remark to Jamie. Will there be a future? He says... You're assuming there will be a future or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I am kind of assuming that the humans will win. <laughs> I don't, I, I kind of don't think that it'll end with the White Walkers end, winning, but I guess there's a small chance that's possible. And maybe, but maybe there's another way to interpret that. Maybe some people won't have a future. It is another example. It is a lot to think about, but it's also another example of something that kind of frustrates me a little bit. I, what happened next in that conversation? Did, did Jamie just like, <laughs> oh, and then walk off? Did he have no follow-up question? Did Bran say nothing else? Uh, yeah. You know, we didn't really talk about Bran and Jamie's scene that much at all, to be honest. We could, we should spend a minute on that. I realized, I kind of just realized we 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 talked, we referred to it, but we didn't detail it yeah. specifically. And it it was a really good scene. In fact, I do appreciate. I like, the, especially on a second watch, after the Bran makes his comment when you already kind of know how it's going, you got to imagine it. It's in the back of Jamie's mind. All the rest, all that time, the whole time, in the back of his mind, at any moment, Bran could bring that up. And he doesn't. Mm. He's so thankful to have Brienne support him, and Sansa seems to get on board. But you got to know, in the back of Jamie's mind, he's just waiting for Bran to ruin it all, and he doesn't. <laughs> so it makes sense for him to go ask. And it also makes sense for Bran to say, like, what, then they'll kill you. How does that help anything? Mm -hmm. Why am I going to confuse things with this? I, I think it all fit in line. I think it was a good way to kind of maintain all the arcs that are going. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, that's a good way to put it. Dr. Meatball says, you know who else was barely in this episode, kind of along your comment, lurking in the background? Ghost, yeah. Another person comments that Ghost looked like he shrunk, which is the same comment we made. So that's yet another person noticing that. It seems pretty true. Uh, super chat from Danelle Peoples. I love how they gave us one of the most beautifully crafted, acted, and written episodes filled with great character moments and rounding out arcs just to rip our hearts out next week. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I think that was a big part of what made this episode great is we know what's coming. And them getting to share these sad moments together is, it just feels appropriate and kind of realistic. You know? Any thoughts on that? Oh, just, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I concur. Right? <laughs> I concur. Why didn't I just concur? <laughs> <laughs> little uh, 
catch me if you can reference there. Uh, Terry of the Citadel asks, could the dragon's return affect his power level? Uh, I assume he's referring to Night King. It, it, yeah, it could. You know, um, I, I think that there's just some evidence of that in the books. At least some characters believe the dragon's returning is 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 a, a part fueling the rise of magic. I tend to believe that the dragons are a symptom of the return of magic because, frankly, the White Walkers in the books and in the show return before the dragons are born. Right? Yeah. Like, the walkers are active in that prologue scene and the dragons aren't born until the end of the season. So... But that doesn't mean that the dragons didn't boost things even more when they were born. You know, it could, it doesn't have to be just an on or off switch. You know, a lot of these here. mystical, mythical things, prophecies and such, it's almost part of the fun or point of them is that you don't know what's cause and effect. And so, like, maybe the comet symbolized the birth of the dragons. Mm. But maybe the dragons were born because of the comet. And maybe almost all these things happening are because of the comet. And uh. the comet was arriving before people saw it in the sky, but it was still on its way. And that, I don't know if that makes any sense. I bet LML and a lot of other people have some thoughts on that, but it, it's almost impossible for us to really know what the cause and effect is. But you can look at certain things like the timing of it. Mm. And so we know certain things started happening before those dragon eggs were hatched. So. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Um, so yeah, it's hard to trace the 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 chicken or the egg, dragon egg, <laughs> the dragon case. or the dragon egg. Yeah, the dragon or the dragon. Egg. Which came first, or the walker or the night king or the dragon? Yeah, it's the order of effects here is something that is still pretty mysterious, but it does seem to be. There's a lot of great takes on it that I. Uh, it I might like. be a neat timeline for someone to put together as mm. best as they could, because there are a lot of different kind of magical, mystical moments happening. Yeah. And sometimes it might be hard to really know which one's happening at first, because we don't necessarily... When you watch an episode, which, by the way, this is one way to help explain timing of travel and stuff like that, it's not like when you see one scene and you see another scene that they're happening immediately after another. Right. You know, you could have a, a storyline that stretches out over three months, and another storyline that stretches out over one week, and they could be interspliced to each other. Yeah. And it might seem as you're watching it like one thing happened right after the other thing, but really it might have happened two or three weeks after. That might not fully explain some of the little fingers, time machine, yeah, travel still machine some ability, stuff but uh, like little finger or you know, little Sam not growing for a long time, and for, now finally he grew or Cersei's <laughs> yeah. yes. hair. But you know, some of those things like Cersei's hair, she chose a style and she's keeping it. Yeah. You know, you could say certain things. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Cersei might get her hair done literally every day, like part of getting ready in the morning. She gets her hair trimmed. You know? <laughs> she wants to be perfect. I wish uh, we had seen um, a little more of uh, maybe gotten a hint of of uh, what was going on in the South, but I, I didn't want to see that instead of some of these other scenes. So, you know, it's all good. Uh, we were wrong about that. Uh, that was something we guessed that the, from the trailers that we thought maybe that because we saw nothing but these Winterfell scenes that we would they were hiding something from us. Well, well there, there were definitely surprises in this episode, but it was not scenes outside of Winterfell. I love that I made a joke about I would not change the title of this episode because since this title is fantastic and I love it. It's one of my favorite titles for an episode considering the way they, they rolled that off. But it's funny to me that this episode is all Winterfell and the first episode was called Winterfell. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say it does make sense that they called that one Winterfell, not this one. They did have a much better title. Another thing I was definitely wrong about, although it's not too late for it to happen, but I just knew I would have bet money that Theon was going to show up and tell John you can be both. A yeah. Stark and a Targaryen. I thought it was great. It's not too late. It can still happen. Could, but now yeah. he has to like survive the battle, and so does John. And yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's no sure thing. While so. we're wrapping up, I will point out that someone brought up, it's not really a correction, but a clarification. Uh, Michael Smith brings up that Davos did mention the butterflies on Noth last season when John went to Dragonstone. Oh, okay. In terms okay. of you wondering if that was show canon. All right. Good catch. Um, that is one of the great things about the fandom and these live streams is y'all get to catch our slash mistakes slash add to uh, things that we didn't fully explain. So great job, y'all. Um, okay, let's see here. Uh, yeah, let's let's start uh, wrapping it up. We've got a couple of shout outs to do. How about you read the beard guard shout outs here, Sean? Uh, once I do the, the first part here. Thanks to Shea for running production and managing so many chatters. We had uh, probably the most people we've ever had on the live stream. Oh, definitely. I think our max before was about a thousand. We hit a thousand while trying to hit a thousand, and so that Sean could dance, and we hit over twelve hundred. Nice. Very cool. Sweet. Very cool. Without Thank any, you, everybody. Yeah, without any particular promotion, and we, had, you know, our our we had you know messages going off like crazy, you know, because it gives you stats on that too. So also very very bustling chat. All right. Well, that's great. That's always fun to see. I hope you all had great conversations in the chat. Of course, with that m much activity, it's hard for us to answer every question. So hopefully we, we got uh, a lot of them. Um, this is a good time to give everyone a reminder. 10,000 people in the chat and we do a 24-hour stream. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is, uh, that'll be hard to pull off, Don't but we will honor them. it. Don't remind them. Don't remind anyone of this. <laughs> also said I'd do a 24-hour stream the day the Winds of Winter is announced uh, to be finished by George R. Martin. So basically, two men are signing me up for me and my computer <laughs> up for all this. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Yeah. But it's okay. We'll go in shifts and my computer will die a noble death. <laughs> <a> sacrifice. <laughs> It'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the budget for the super chats for that 24-hour stream. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, thanks again to Shea. Thanks again, Sean. Thanks to all the people who came to watch and listen today. Thanks for all the great questions. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our music. Thanks to all the other people in the community whose thoughts we leveraged for our own thoughts in this episode. So many great other podcasts and blogs and essays and shows that are doing great work that are very much worthy of your time and I recommend uh, finding other ones that, that uh, work for you because there's just so much greatness in this fandom um, and also thanks to the patrons who keep our show running uh, financial support is very crucial to the success and continuance of History of Westeros so we appreciate those people who have reached out to us in that manner uh, Sean why don't you read the beard guard here one real quick thing before I do, just sure. one last bit about my excitement. Ice and FireCon coming up just a few days. And yeah. anyone who's listening now that is there, make sure to come say hi to me. Right on. Um, and we'll give out uh, thanks to my hand of the beard, Lady Suzanne Sinistral, Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak. Special shout out as always to Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound. Yeah. Dance the Fervor, <laughs> Sir Joff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Cargoyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert, Queen Helena von Lanstein, Parting Like It's 1999 Since 1980-something. All right. <laughs> a Kingdom for a Drink. Yeah, and thanks to uh, Paul Popovich, who sends a live donation through PayPal. He says, you all are all the bomb. Love the Song of Ice and Fire analysis. Keep it up. Thank you, Paul. We appreciate that. 
And that's a wrap, folks. Valar rewatch us and Valar re-read us.